People, classic pro wrestling, and AEW television, which is a mixture of both. And joining me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you. He's the man that's so smart, he can sit on an ice cream cone and tell you what flavor it is. The great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again. It's cookies and cream. And uh, I'll do my best to see how much of this show we can get on YouTube this week. That's another, yeah, that's another Mama Cornette. You're such a smartass, you can sit on an ice cream cone and tell me what flavor it is. Well, we ain't got a lot of smart people around us, Brian. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that the average, well, let me, let me not say it like that. As a whole, as a whole, the American people are very stupid, stupid people. Now, see, if anybody just took what I said personally, then you stooged on yourself. You told on yourself. You consider yourself a stupid person, or elsewise, you wouldn't consider that that applies to you. But Because there are smart Americans, many of them. Some are even geniuses. But what we are is we're surrounded, for every one of those smart people, for every one of those geniuses, by about a dozen nitwits that uh, the the kind that Jim Ross used to term the lost pile cousins. There's Gomer, there's Goober, and then there's this guy. And that brings the average way down. So Americans can be smart, but the American people as a whole, all together, are fucking stupid. And... If anybody disagrees with me on this, go fuck yourself. And I will explain why in minute detail. <sighs> you know, I had somebody that I used to know. I won't mention any names. I'll just call him Dodger for short. He told me about five years ago, he said, Jim, he said, don't do politics on your show because then it limits your audience. It alienates part of your audience. And, and don't do politics and be opinionated. <clears throat> on your program because it hurts your merchandise sales. Well, here's an idea. If you don't want to listen to what I want to talk about on my show, don't fucking listen. And if you are in the opposite camp of me being opposed to murdering children, if you don't agree with me being against murdering children, then don't buy my fucking merchandise. I don't need your goddamn money. I will go further to say that if anybody within the sound of my voice is not against murdering school children, lay down in front of me so that I can pull my pants down, squat down, and shit in your fucking mouth. So now that we've established that, we did it again. Everybody in the United States knows what I'm talking about. 
I'm probably speaking now to our international listeners who may be lucky enough that they don't keep up with daily American news. But everybody around here knows what I'm talking about. Another nut with another assault rifle in another elementary school, this time 19 kids, two teachers. So he got second place. That's only the second, by latest statistics, deadliest school shooting. He tried his best. But because this is such a fucked up country with a bunch of fucked up nitwits running it, or serving in Congress or government or whatever in it, he only got second place. But he tried. There was a lot of help from the governor of Texas. Because the governor of Texas, did you see this, Brian? Sometime back when the statistics came out and he found out, and this guy's name is Greg Abbott. I guess his lieutenant governor is Lou Costello because he's a fucking clown. When he found out sometime back that Texas was only second in the nation in gun sales, he actually tweeted encouraging his his citizens to do better and, and take over the number one spot. They're not number one in education or health care or quality of life in any other way, but they want to be number one in gun sales. So this time what happened, for any of you who might be blissfully unaware of this, is that some 18-year-old fucking mental case went and bought legally, we'll talk about this, two assault rifles, the AK, whatever the fucks, only the fucking gun fetishists that make up for their small, limp penis with their large, hard guns know all the terminology. But the the 18-year-old kid, on his birthday, went to the local friendly neighborhood gun store and bought two assault rifles and a bunch of multiple rounds of ammunition from his friendly neighborhood gun dealer. And this is legal because in the state of Texas, ladies and gentlemen around the world who are, their heads are shaking and you're spinning at the ignorance of our stupid people over here. It's legal when you're 18 years old in Texas, you can't drink and you can't, can you, can you serve in the armed forces? I think you got to be 21 to do that these days. No, you can be 18. Yeah, you can, you can be 18 to kill people foreignly and domestically. Uh, but when you're 18, you can purchase rifles, but not handguns. You got to be 21 in the state of Texas to purchase a handgun. So it is currently legal for a 21-year-old guy to purchase a fucking handgun, but not an 18-year-old person. An 18-year-old person is limited, instead of just handheld revolvers, all they can buy is fucking assault rifles they give the military. Because the state of Texas is the, if not the worst, one of the worst in this fucking delusion that Americans have that they're all fucking going to refight the Revolutionary War or kill the marauding Huns or... Stay away from my shitty wall, you fucking marauders. And when the kid went to the gun store, I'm sure that there was no discussion because if you work in a fucking gun store and you're selling assault rifles, you've basically said, I'm a fucking soulless ghoul who will enable murder. So 
An 18-year-old kid comes into the gun store. Two assault rifles, ammunition. Passes the instant background check. I guess they photocopy his driver's license. And buys this. What did the seller say? Hey, how you doing there, pal? Big weekend? Going camping with the folks? Oh, I see it's your 18th birthday. This is the very first day that you're legally able to buy these guns. Must have been anxious to do this. Must have been waiting for a while. Have some big plans. Going to go rabbit hunting. No. <clears throat> they just give him the shit. They probably helped him carry it to the car. Because we're a stupid fucking people, and that's perfectly permissible. In the state of Texas and many other places. And then he shoots his grandmother in the face. And then he goes to the school for whatever purpose that they're yet to divine. And he walks in the back door carrying a goddamn... Because it's Texas. People carry rifles around all the time. Because they're all fucking goofy. And he goes in and he shoots in four different classrooms. 19 kids. Two teachers. They can't even get their story straight now. The law enforcement. First they said, well, there was a school security guard there, but then there wasn't. And then the cops came, but they waited an hour because, you know what? Here's the problem. The fucking 18-year-old mentally disabled nitwit had the local police force outgunned. They've just got the... The regular old cop stuff, shotguns and handguns and things and such of that nature. So it's like sending in the goddamn crossing guard to fight the SWAT team. So they sit out there for about an hour before backup comes, the, whether it was the, they have a SWAT team there in that town, nine whole members of it. But we don't know whether it was them or somebody said it was the border patrol with the heavy government equipment. Nobody wanted to fuck with this one nitwit because it's perfectly legal in his backwards-ass state run by Republican shit-kickers to go and buy shit that the cops don't fucking have. You see where we're going down the fucking road of stupid here? So then they shot him and killed him. And... <sighs> I, I'm not even going to go into everybody knows what I think about this because every time that innocent people are slaughtered in the streets, you know, like what, three times a week, whenever we comment on it, I say the same thing. The Second Amendment and these fucking morons. We have got a constitution that was written 250 years ago. We've changed or amended or backtracked on it 30 something times on shit that in some cases was not nearly as big a deal as this. But because a minority, but a fanatical minority of American people, mostly small-dicked males, have this fetish that they're either going to be an action movie hero or they're going to refight the Revolutionary War or there are non-existent hordes of marauding, marauding Mexican drywallers that are crossing the border... 
and they're going to be big heroes or they're going to defend themselves or whatever the fuck. That's why they need 17 assault rifles in their house in Des Moines. And these are the people the government ought to be keeping an eye on. And as far as the Constitution goes, it's a wonderful framework. Certain parts of it are excellent. What other instruction manual written 250 years ago do we fucking follow for today's everyday life? None. Just like the background, the backstories on every religion, we're human beings and we made this shit up. And if we made it up once, we can fix it when it goes sideways. But for whatever reason that the 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 gods and the guns intersect with these people our god-given right to carry they don't say anything in the in the constitution about plutonium or atomic weaponry you know what else ain't the constitution air conditioning are we all supposed to sweat our balls off because we don't have a constitutional right to air conditioning you fucking twits just fix the shit so I'm in favor of tearing the whole goddamn thing up, including the Second Amendment, and keeping the good stuff and fixing the bad stuff and going on from there, but that would be too logical or sensible. So let's take a more moderate approach. Let's say your house is on fire, but you only want to put part of the fire out at a time. That's really a, the way you should attack that. Let's just save the bedroom. We don't spend much time in the fucking den. Let that burn for a while. Let's be more moderate about this. Who believes that it's a good idea for an 18-year-old kid that's already exhibited signs of being a fucking creep on his birthday should go in and buy two assault rifles? Let's start there. Where do you think that would fall, Brian, in the United States of America? Would it be 80-20, probably, with the... There's 20, you know, the, the same base voters of the Republican Party are the ones that thought it would be a good idea for Donnie Dipshit to be president. The one government we should have tried to overthrow, he ended up trying to overthrow his own government. They are single-issue voters. It doesn't matter whether a criminal is in charge. It doesn't matter whether everything else goes to shit. Stop abortion or don't take our guns away. And that's what these fanatics do, and that's why the Republicans, who we'll get into shortly, cater to them, won't do anything about this, because that's their fucking voters. So it might be 80-20 in the United States about don't let the 18-year-old nitwit buy assault rifles that are given out to people in fucking wartime conditions in Guadalajara somewhere. That would be moderate. That would do something, but they won't even do that. And even if 80% of the American people might be behind it or the background checks or any of the other things that could be done because folks, again, everybody in this country knows this, but if you're an international listener, the gun manufacturers make a bloody fortune, and that's not a pun. Millions, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars off of this country because we're all fucking lunatics. And they have assembled an organization called the NRA, NRA, the National Rifle Association, that is a domestic terrorist organization that enables 
and promotes the idea that everybody should have as many guns as they want anywhere because that makes the gun manufacturers more money. And the Republican politicians get millions of dollars from the NRA and the gun lobby to not change any of the gun laws on the theory that it's our Constitution and our God-given rights, even though God didn't sign a Constitution and this is all fucking made up. But that's the story they tell the rubes and the suckers. They know what's going on, but they're taking the money, and they can't get reelected because the Republicans' base voters are the rubes and the suckers who buy into this shit. Don't take my guns and my freedom while they're living at a trailer park with no health care and a 300-pound wife and 16 kids that she's plopped out of her uterus at home because they have no doctor. But they got freedom. So, that's why nothing is done. But, you know, the biggest one, the single biggest politician or the single politician that takes the biggest amount of money from the gun manufacturers, gun lobby, gun interests is old Ted Cruz from Texas, his home state. Ted Cruz was confronted by a journalist from across the pond, somewhere in the United Kingdom, by his accent. He said, why explain why this only happens here, nowhere else in the world? Well, this is not the time to politicize this. No, just I'm asking you, why... What causes this, that it doesn't happen anywhere else? Well, you have your own agenda. No, you spineless, Grandpa Munster-looking motherfucker. We've got a legitimate question. Brian, do you know what Ted Cruz tried to ban in Texas? Now, he stood up for all the gun rights, and he's the number one gun guy. And he'll vote down any gun control legislation of any kind that the Democrats propose. Do you know what Ted Cruz tried to ban in the state of Texas, make illegal? I don't. Dildos. Ted Cruz tried to ban dildos. You know, those sex toys and things, it makes our kids perverts. And if they're lucky enough to grow up to be 18 without getting shot first, we don't want them to be perverts. The Republicans want to Protect your children from wearing masks in pandemics because, oh, we need to see the smiles. Remember Glenn Jacobs, my old ex-friend who became a lunatic and sucks up to Trump. We want to see their smiles. Well, the kids in Texas didn't have any masks on and they weren't smiling. The Republicans want to protect kids from gay people in the bathroom. Apparently, because their flatulence smells worse than everybody else's. They want to protect the kids from learning about how bad that we fucked the black people and the Indians and the Chinese and everybody else that the white American people have fucked with. Don't teach history. We got to protect the kids from that. Let's protect the kids from health care. You know, all the adults that have no health care in this country, they got kids. They don't have any either. Let's protect them from all of that. But slaughtered in fucking math class? Nah, they're on their own. The domestic terrorists are the Republican base voters, the gun nuts who pay the fucking bills for the Republicans to vote down. And I get so sick and tired of it. 
Well, why don't the Democrats do something? They've got control of everything. No, they don't. Because you simpletons don't understand how this fucked up, stupid system we got works. Majority doesn't rule. 60 out of 100 or two-thirds or whatever the case. But since we're not smart enough to elect 60 Democrats in the Senate at any one time, that's why nothing positive ever gets done. And the NRA is meeting in Texas this weekend. The big meeting where all the Republican politicians, the same ones that take Christmas card pictures with their kids and their dogs all carrying guns and rifles and make it cool to the fucking rubes and the suckers and the hillbillies that look up to these ass wipes, these fucking disgusting, repugnant, White motherfucker, you know, I've said the biggest problem in the world, stupid white people. They commit child abuse, normalizing this shit. And Donnie Dipshit's going to be there at the big NRA meeting in Texas while they gloat over their billions of dollars in profits while all these people down in Uvalde are crying about their kids. And he's going to bloviate and blustify a bunch of bullshit like he usually does. And there'll be some thoughts and prayers. And then they'll suggest that everybody get some more guns to protect. They're already seeing armed the teachers, you stupid motherfuckers. You, only, you don't pay the teachers what the goddamn Spectrum Cable guy makes. And now you want them to be fucking soldiers and security guards, too. And they don't want your fucking guns. They don't want the people that have them to have them. Much less for you to give them some. You, your fucking wiring needs plugged back in, people. So they're going to have this meeting. And they're going to do nothing. Beto O'Rourke walked right up to Governor Asshole in Texas and said, this is on you. You've done nothing. You've hurt the problem. You, they just laxened. Lax, is that even a word? You know what I'm talking about. Fucking deal with it. They laxened. The goddamn gun laws in Texas, where now you don't even need a permit. You just walk around with one. Normal people, that makes them nervous when they see a bunch of people walking around on the street with guns for no fucking reason. Because there are no marauding bands of fucking terrorists pouring in over the fucking border. They're already here. And they live with us. So, the UK had one school shooting. And they banned guns. Guess what? No more school shootings. Like I said, here's my opinion. Keep your goddamn six-shot, one-at-a-time revolver. Everything else, we're picking them up. We're going to pay you for them. You don't need them. We can't have nice things. We're putting them in the fucking landfill. If you don't fucking comply, you're a goddamn criminal. You're going to fucking jail. Nobody needs this shit this bad. It's fucking foolish. If you need more than a handgun to protect yourself, much less an assault rifle, you are associating with people you shouldn't be associating with, doing things you shouldn't do in a place you shouldn't be. And or if you're a regular fucking jack-off trying to protect your family and you need more than six shots, you're fucked. But that's why we can't have nice things. 
because people are stupid. And nowhere else in the world does this go on because nowhere else in the world did they grow up with the fucking movies and the TV shows and the fucking and their parents and grandparents handing this down to them mental child abuse. Oh yeah, guns, guns, God, glory, patriotism, whatever the fuck, let's shoot everybody. We need to be investigating some of those fucking people that continue this from generation to generation. You're supposed to smarten up as time goes on. And it, I don't care what your standpoint is on gun control or gun rights or gun whatever. One of those kids in that classroom smeared her dead friend's blood on her to play dead so that the guy wouldn't shoot her. You know what that means? That means fuck your fucking rights to me. Your fucking rights. You've got a right to breathe and to do what you want to do that doesn't inflict or affect other people. And that does not include this ridiculous, fanatical, delusional policy that we've got because we think we're all a bunch of fucking cowboys. Bring it back. Reel it in. One of the teachers that got killed, her husband, went and put flowers out at the memorial and had a heart attack and died right afterwards. You think these people care about your fucking rights to go rabbit hunting or fucking protect yourself with goddamn more weaponry than charged up San Juan Hill just because you have this delusion that God was sitting in on the Constitution meeting? Fuck you. Here's something I want to read you. We talked about being moderate or being fanatical or what's the right thing in between. I say it shouldn't be just moderate to say people shouldn't have assault rifles. But here's another country, Brian, that doesn't have school shootings or basically any other kind of shootings like every other. But you know what? One of the Republicans gave a list of, well, there's shootings in these countries and gave the goddamn comedy list of war-torn banana republics. Like, we've, this is what we the greatest country on earth, and this is what we can aspire to, to have less shootings than El Salvador? Did you see the one guy, uh, I think it was Senator Kennedy, who said, or not Kennedy, Cassidy, who said that they need assault rifles to kill feral pigs? <laughs> <laughs> They were, if they killed feral pigs, the fucking GOP roster would be shrinking. But and, and as a matter of fact, here's the thing now. I'm talking about mostly Republican politicians and or, of course, the voters that enable them. Because if you're one of the single issue voters on abortion or gun rights, you can go fuck yourself too, you fucking repugnant pieces of shit. Because you're the cause of a lot of this. But if you're just a registered Republican voter... Don't you sometimes look around and wonder, hey, everybody else in this party is fucking nuts. The politicians are assholes. The people on Fox News are people you, you'd pay money not to be locked up in a room with for 10 minutes. And most of the goddamn people voting for these criminals and assholes look fucked up to me. 
So then wouldn't you look at your, why am I in this group? Here's the rules. If you want to get a, a gun in Japan, you know what you got to do, Brian, to get a gun in Japan? I don't know. Okay, in Japan, to get a gun, you must take a firearms class and pass a written exam, which is held up to three times a year. And and let me and uh, taking these things individually, tell me what's unreasonable. If you are going to buy a gun, especially a gun that is given of the type that's given to law enforcement or security, military personnel, whatever, but any kind of gun, which of these things on this list is unreasonable for you, Brian, and for anybody listening to me? Take a firearms class, pass a written exam. They hold them three times a year. You need to get a doctor's note saying that you're mentally fit and do not have a history of drug abuse. Well, we would like some medical professional to tell me that the person that's got this gun is not crazy and does isn't on drugs, right? You also have to apply for a permit to take firearms training, which may take up to a month. Then you need to describe in a police interview why you need a gun. Why are you scared? Why are you scared? Do you live in a bad neighborhood? Do you have a risky job? Are you out late at night amongst the, the denizens of the night? Tell the cops. What do you need this gun for, pal? Pass a review of your criminal history, gun possession record, employment, involvement with organized crime groups, personal debt, and relationships with friends, family, and neighbors. So, do you have a criminal record? Do you have a record of gun possession? Are you gainfully employed? Have you had involvement with crime? Are you in major personal debt? Do you have any domestic incidents we'd like to know about from your friends and family? Then you have to apply for a gunpowder permit. Ah, very smart. Then you take a one-day training class and pass a firing test. Then you obtain a certificate from a gun dealer that describes the gun you want. If you want a gun for hunting, you need to get a hunting license. Then you need to buy a gun safe and an ammunition locker that meets safety regulations so that this gun that you have that can kill people is locked up, stored somewhere that meets all the regulations. People can't steal it, get into it. Then you allow the police to inspect that to make sure it's proper. Then you pass an additional background review now that you've cleared all those other things, and then you buy the gun. Guess what? Nobody gets shot in Japan. Fuck. What, uh, what of any of those things, if you're buying a gun, is, is unreasonable? It seems reasonable to me. So, but they, in the UK, as we mentioned, what was Dunblane in Scotland, they just decided, no, our, whatever reason we have, for having the guns we have is not worth something like this happening. Now, of course, it was easier in other countries to begin with when they smartened up because there weren't more guns in the country than people. But if we don't start doing something now, we ain't ever, that's like I said, which part of the house that's on fire do you want to start putting out? And you want to be aggressive about it? Because again, people say, oh, well, criminals won't follow the laws. Exactly. So don't let the criminals have easy access to guns. And most of the people that you'll notice walking down the street look like criminals to me. So let's just err on the side of safety. 
I don't know what or why that this, well, I do know why. Like I said, the movies and the stories and the mental child abuse passed down by generations of fucking shit kickers over here that have delusional fantasies. Well, instead of passing down religion, they're passing down guns. But at some point, the sane people need to take control of the nitwits and the knuckle draggers. And even if there has to be more stupid people in the country than smart ones, somebody needs to lead. The smart ones are supposed to be in office. But they're not going to do anything either. Well, we know which ones aren't and which ones are. There was an assault weapons ban under President Obama when Biden was vice president, and it did succeed in reducing incidents until the next Republican administration, guess who that was, let it expire, telling all the people, oh, we're going to give you your gun rights. There's not going to be any more restriction, blah, blah, blah. So the gun manufacturers could make more money and more people could get shot for no good reason because these people are fucking ghouls. So, I, I mean, Sandy High, Sandy High, Sandy Hook didn't do it. These people don't care. It's like you're trying to take away their food or their children. Take away their gun. Just because you're responsible enough to have one doesn't mean that everybody else is or that most other people are. And you know what? What fucking difference does it make? What do you need it for? You fucking lunatics. Then it becomes a goddamn Keystone's cops bit where everybody's shooting at everybody. This doesn't happen anywhere else in the world because these delusions are not prevalent anywhere else in the world and the political structure does not support these delusions anywhere else in the world and there are no gun manufacturers anywhere else in the world making anywhere near this money besides if they're supplying the goddamn national army of whatever country and we have more guns in private hands in the united states than i think any other army in the world because we're a fucking stupid people So, anyway, um, I don't even know what to say to people in Texas or to anybody that knew anybody involved in this. Otherwise, then do something. Vote, protest, complain, raise money. And here, the, I would like to say donate to the anti gun organizations but the gun manufacturers blow them away 100 to 1 on financing so donate and vote to anti-gun candidates be like these assholes you really care that much about it we ought to be a single issue voter for a couple of terms if you support the nra if you support guns if you don't want to do anything to control and restrict and rewrite these laws fuck you I ain't voting for you and let's just try to gather up enough people because the fanatics are fanatical. That's why Republicans have won several of the last 
five or six election cycles. And even if they don't, they get the electoral or don't get the uh, the popular vote. They get the electoral college because there are the fanatical single issue voters on their side. And it comes down to you've lost your abortion rights because of God and you're losing the gun battle because God wrote the Constitution in these people's minds. So that's the only thing to do other and shame them and fart in their general direction when they walk down the street. But that's the only way things are going to change. And here's another thing. This was Mental Health Awareness Month, the month of May. Obviously, this guy, nobody was aware of his mental health. So, and and here now in a country, again, supposedly the greatest country in the world, let's play the Star Spangled Banner, Mental Health Awareness Month, lots of Americans can't find or pay for a doctor to take their gallbladder out, much less a psychiatrist or whoever else that's at the level to evaluate somebody like this guy that did this. And as a Republican, well, it's not the guns, it's the shooter. No, it's the shooter with the fucking gun. And they say it's a mental health, well, it is a mental health problem, but every other country in the world has crazy people. And every other world, every other country in the world has domestic disputes and people that hate each other and fucking loners and whatever the fuck else. You know what they got? They've got to grab a fucking saber or a goddamn blunt instrument and do the best they can before they get taken down. And I mentioned again, I mentioned mental health awareness. Think about this. And I'm not trying to be commercial here because I ain't making any money off this. Every bit of it is going to mental health awareness. But when you think about it, we talked about just last week, the day before this happened, we recorded that program. And Stacy and I mentioned Jeremy Bagley, Lee Petrie, Hot Rod, Rodney Esty was in on this. And I forgot to plug him last week. And John Fella, all of them had an idea. Independent of this happening, let's just raise money. They thought about. Daphne's situation last fall and they thought about Naomi Judd and the all the people in wrestling that are coming out talking about mental health it is well let's raise some money and they put this shirt out and I will plug it here jimcornett.com I'm a sin guy shirt for all you old OVW fans or anybody just wants to raise money for a good cause they're 20 bucks a piece every penny is going to nami.org the national alliance on mental illness right I got that right. And between the shirt sales and what I'm matching and Bagley's kicking in and everybody, in the past four days, we've raised $1,500, more than $1,500 for the National Association on Mental Illness, which means that Stacey Cornett has done more this week alone to help mentally ill people and or prevent school shootings than every Republican politician put together which on their part is nothing. So I guess we got to do this ourselves, folks, because your Ted Cruz's and your fucking bitch McConnell's and your Greg Abbott's and your obviously Donnie dipshit, he'll probably make extra money selling fucking rifles to the domestic terrorist if he ever gets back in office. They ain't going to do dick. So if you're disgusted, at the idea of a little fucking elementary school girl 
rubbing her dead friend's blood all over herself to play dead so she doesn't get shot in math class. Do fucking something and tell these people what you think of them. Well, Jim, I think you spoke for a lot of people with a lot of what you said there, and we've heard from a lot of people who wanted to hear it, but we also know that the people do want to hear some wrestling talk here. This I will, morning, and so. I just, we, we just took a break to decompose ourselves, and I just realized, wait a minute, now we got to do a, a fucking show, right? Well, I've ribbed myself. I'm, I'm cranked up and ready for a cheeseburger. But anyway, we will, we will press on. I said we're going to do some classic wrestling talk to... Give everybody a palate cleanser from all of the activities this week. But first, we got to talk about a little current activity. Apparently, money in the bank was not necessarily money in the bank this year. Is this what I'm hearing? We've got a a venue change. I've I've gone through a, a few of those before, but not at the level of this. Um, they've gone from what's the stadium out there in Las Vegas? They were going to be at. Oh, I don't know the name of it. Is it? Well, oh, I don't know that. Like, you wouldn't know the name of a stadium in Las Vegas. They keep changing the fucking names of stadiums. People just buy the rights to name the stadium after themselves. You you know, And then they lose it and someone else buys it. You know Frank Spaceman Hickey's social security number. Why won't you know what the big fucking stadium in Las Vegas? Anyway, they're going from the stadium to an arena. Enron Field, I believe it is. Enron Field. Where have we... (laughs) Jesus Christ. Where have we heard this before, Brian? So the point is, money in the bank in July, no longer in the big stadium out there in Vegas. It's now going to be in one of the indoor arenas. They're bucking a big UFC fight also that same night. But this, that doesn't look, how are they going to spin this? It does not look good. They can't, they don't even have, they can't blame the war in Ukraine like they did in 1991 when they blamed the war in Iraq. So how are they going to spin this? Well, you know, Sergeant Slaughter's out there right now. <laughs> Maybe they could do something there. I don't know how you could spin this. I don't even know if they're going to try to spin it. It's just they are moving arenas, people who are ticket holders for what was clearly not even close to half an arena. Got emails saying they're going to have to get new tickets for the new arena and the new show. WWE is just not that hot right now, and they shouldn't ever fool themselves with whatever social media stats they lie to themselves about and whatever WrestleMania does based on the strength of WrestleMania. Because right now, I've said it, I like Cody, I like Becky Lynch, but other than that, there's not much in that promotion to inspire you to want to see an event. Well, and also this, it's money in the bank. It's not, like you said, WrestleMania. It's not even SummerSlam. It's not even... uh... Royal Rumble, what it was money in the bank. And I guess, well, it, also, we may have gone over some people's heads with what we just referred to because this has happened before. It was 30, 31 years ago. And some of the newer fans may not be up on it. But in 1991, WrestleMania was originally scheduled to be in the LA Coliseum where they had the Blassie Tolos match in 70. 71, and it seats, what, almost 100,000 people. More than 100,000, I think. More than 100,000 people. And the deal was that it was going to be Hulk Hogan against Sergeant Slaughter, who had become an Iraqi sympathizer with General Adnan, old Adnan Casey, Billy White Wolf. And for the first time ever, Slaughter's a heel. He's a foreign sympathizer. They put this, the, the, the... 
angle for this into motion before there was a war. And then all of a sudden, there becomes the Gulf War, and already people are kind of, it's starting to, the, the, the taste value is starting to go down on the thing, and nobody was buying tickets. And they ended up having to move from the 100,000-plus seat L.A. Coliseum to, where'd they go, the sports arena? Sports arena, yeah. The indoor sports arena, you know, seated 18,000 or whatever. And they blamed it on security. They said, well, we can't be sure of security due to the immense heat of the Gulf War and Sergeant Slaughter and everything. We can't do outside security. We're moving it indoors. Actually, it was because they wouldn't have had any more people outdoors in the 100,000-seat arenas they had in the indoor sports arena. But this time, it's just, oh, we were going to do this. We did a commercial, and uh, now we're back inside. And I'm wondering, I don't know how many people in decision-making power, we've Stephanie just took a leave of absence. Now, Vince is the only McMahon. How many people have been there that were that were there 25 years ago or that were there in the 80s when they saw what the business like was like when it was really hot whether the time period of the 80s or the attitude era in the 90s when the WWE had both in both of those eras what would you say easily domestically I'm not talking about around the world they say now they got 600 million people watching them on YouTube in India. That's fine. I'm talking about the United States of America for television, going to live events in the 80s and during the Attitude Era. Would you say there were six times, eight times, 10 times as many fans watching TV altogether, going to all the live events as there are now? They just weren't spending as much money per head. But the the, the current audience today is 20%. 25% tops of what it was then, right? I would think so, yeah. Okay, so when you're going to a stadium, you're dealing with two things. You're either dealing with selling multitudes of tickets locally in a market, or you're dealing with, we got to attract fly-ins. WrestleMania attracts people from all over the world. And now they've got something of that nature going with SummerSlam also, and maybe, the, like I said, the Rumble. But Money in the Bank, the month before SummerSlam, you're not either going to end with a big fight in town, and Vegas has never been a stadium town for wrestling. Even in, in the days when wrestling was hot, Vegas didn't draw huge fucking wrestling crowds, and there was never a territory there that did any kind of mega business. There's so much entertainment in town. The point is, you can't sell multitudes of tickets locally. And it's not a fly-in destination event. They got too big for their britches. And that's why I said, the reason I mentioned who was there in the 80s, who was there in the 90s in decision-making power now, like you mentioned, they may think that this business they've got now is hot. They may not have experienced the other eras to know when there were multiple times more people interested in their product, not just the same amount of people willing to spend an endless amount of money per head. And that may have colored that they look at the social media, like you said, and all the other stuff, and they may say, oh gosh, we should just do all of our big events in a stadium. Good fucking luck. 
because you can get 12,000, 15,000, whatever the NBA buildings with their stage set up and everything holds, you can get that for a pay-per-view in a major market, major city these days, and with the advertising they can do, and people will drive hour, two hours, three hours. But you got to still, still, you've got to have a show that they want to see in a place they want to go to and not have it not cluttered up by big events on each side of it to do a stadium crowd. Even back then, in the Attitude Era or the 80s, there weren't a lot of stadium shows because they were still in the same markets on a regular basis, live. They would do, you know, 15,000 people in New York four or five times a year or more in the 80s. Um, but the, 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 the number of individuals just isn't there anymore. It's the same people going to everything they can, but they're not only not really making new fans in this country, they've lost a significant portion of the ones they had. So it's just, I mean, I'm, I'm not crying for them that they're embarrassed over this because they should have known better to begin with, but it, it's not a good, not a good look as the kids say, Brian. No. And at least the first time they had the Iraq war to pretend that was the reason they had to move this time. They have nothing. And they had all these promos with Cody in the stadium that they've been airing indicating that the show would be in a stadium. I don't know if they're going to spin it. They may just ignore it. And all of a sudden the events in a new place. What do you, what do you think? Why don't they put the, the Cody promos? If he'd have done them in front of a green screen, they could just insert him into an arena instead of on the field. Or maybe, maybe he could teleport himself. If he can call Matt Hardy and figure out the secret to that, then he can suddenly be on the field and then boom, he teleports himself into the fucking arena. And so what well, we're going to do this now. Maybe you announced Cody was there with some partners looking to buy an NFL team. He wants to compete with Tony Khan. <laughs> uh, He's got a lot of ambitions, that young man. Well, but the point is we wish them well in their future endeavors, the WWE, but I, I think maybe they ought to stay out of the stadiums. What do you think? Except for the big ones. The really, the really big shit. The really big ones then still, you still have this problem with a thin roster and not creating new stars, and not creating new top stars, and you can get all the TV renewal deals you want, this is where it catches up to you, when you actually have to show fan support, and it's not there. You know, more people need to become pro wrestlers, or more people maybe need to, maybe the pro wrestlers need to switch their careers, and other people need to take their place. It's all about finding the perfect place for you, right, Brian? It's all about switch careers. If you're not doing well in one, Switch to another one. Of course, it's not as easy as all that. Sometimes you need training, right? You need training if you're a wrestler. You also need training if you're going to switch careers into one of the new space age careers. Remember that used to be a phrase, Brian? You remember the old magazines back in the 60s and 70s? New space age technology. I, I bought a moon blanket one time. It said this blanket is lightweight, the same kind that the astronauts carry with them in their pack and it will protect you from any type of weather and it's only a dollar 99 well that sounds so fantastic so i bought that thing and it came in an envelope about the size of a cassette tape and it was basically a sheet of see-through aluminum foil folded over into multiple 
fucking things until it fit into that cassette and you just unfolded it and you were enveloped in a crinkly, silverish, thin plastic type of foil thing. I never tried it out in the harsh Kentucky winters. It didn't look like it it did when I envisioned it, when I ordered it from the magazine. But folks, that's what you need to stay away from when you're switching careers. You need to go for the real space age stuff. And now it's it's 2022. It's not the 70s anymore. And now the big careers are all in coding, Brian. They're all in code. That's why you can't understand what they are, because they're in code. And you need to go to school to learn how to read the code, and that's where Code Academy comes in. Folks, this is not the week to worry about the lizard people or the bots. This is the week to worry about you and your bot and your ass that goes along with it. And do you want to be broke, busted, and disgusted, so broke you can't pay attention? Out on the street where people are not charitable and wouldn't give a crippled crab a crutch, much less donate to your well-being and self-preservation. You got to pull yourself up by your chin straps or your boot straps. Well, if you've got a double chin, you might have a chin strap. And you got to do this all on your own. You've got to learn a trade, learn a skill, learn a new career. And then you go and advance yourself. You make all kinds of money. And then you buy the place that you can hide from the lizard people and the bots when the world comes to an end. Folks, over 50 million people already know that Codecademy is the best way to learn to code because they not only teach you job-ready coding skills, but also help you build unique projects for your portfolio. They helped me build a complete replica of Fort Boonesboro out of toothpicks. Also, you can earn certificates that you can cash in at Thornberry's Toys for a free fire engine. And you can even you prep for technical interviews. You can't get the free fire engine at Thornberry's Toys? Let's be clear about that. You can't. What are the certificates for that Code Academy gives you? They give you a certificate of completion to show that you've completed the course and that you are ready to code and help the world. So it's just, it's a certificate of recommendation and a recognition. Recognition, not recommendation. Recognition. Well, you better recognize. <laughs> you better recognize as part of the great resignation, if you're switching careers, you better recognize that you need to be recommended by Code Academy. You can choose what to learn from building basic websites to artificial intelligence to stonemasonry and also the, the chance to possibly become a surgeon later in life. No matter what your experience level, you'll be writing real working code in minutes. Nobody will be able to read it, but you'll be writing it. And the coding languages, of course, Python, Hitamal, Squall, JavaScript, and so much more. <laughs> and if you're not sure where to begin, then Codecademy will point you in the right direction, which is out their door if you can't pay for this shit. <laughs> you can get instant feedback, like more money, and your code is tested as soon as you submit it, so you always know if you're on the right track or swirling down the porcelain throne. Again, folks, join the over 50 million people. Where are these 50 million people, and how do Codecademy house all of them at the same time? You know, they've got these giant dormitories and bunkers, but still 50 million people. But there's 50 million of them, and they're learning to code with Code Academy to see where coding can take them. Round their elbow to get to their wrist, most likely. Get 15% off your Code Academy Pro membership when you go to CodeCademy.com and use the promo code EXPERIENCE. Promo code EXPERIENCE at CodeCademy, C-O-D-E-C-A-D-E-M-Y.com 
promo code experience, 15% off, get a new career, earn fame, fortune, and glamour, and write stuff that nobody knows how to read. Codecademy. Except the people who need to know how to read it, Codecademy. Who knows how to read this shit? Who needs to know? Is this a need-to-know basis? Well, someone needs to know. I don't know how to read the shit that I wrote about AEW this week. I'll tell you that. I was using shorthand. I think so was Tony Khan when he gave the instructions. Let's remind everyone this is the go-home show for the big pay-per-view event. Yeah, and a lot of people went home. Um, Do we have any ratings for this? Uh, Let me see what I can pull up. Well, while you're looking at that, because I'm thinking... They started fantastically and they finished strong, but in the middle, a lot of shit slipped and fell in a mud puddle. But uh, I guess the best segment, and (laughs) good Lord, they have managed in three years to get two people, two of their own homegrown people that hadn't been seen on a widespread national television basis over And they're both in the same program and both in the same segment here. MJF and Wardlow. Wardlow is the the new Goldberg. I'm sensing the hysteria. There's not as many people. You know, Goldberg had the, the good luck to come along during the Attitude Era, but there's not as many people watching, but they're as into Wardlow as they were to Goldberg. And the first match on the show... AEW was May 25th, by the way, was Wardlow against Spears in the cage with MJF as referee. And the deal is coming up on the pay-per-view this weekend, Wardlow has to go through all of these, jump through the hoops and fight Spears and beat him and can't touch MJF and blah, blah, blah. So they started out with this, try to keep the people. And this was the best thing they could have started with to keep people because it, 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 the people in the arena were into this from the start and There was a couple of little things, but otherwise, this top to bottom did exactly what it was supposed to do, which is make people even more frantic to see Wardlow get his hands on MJF. And it was was perfect. From MJF's heat-getting referee outfit... And then Wardlow, is, he's led to the ring. By the way, did you see the two security guys in the front when he first started the long walk? They looked like they were 12 years old. The last several weeks, there have been some interesting-looking security guards mixed in with some people who may or may not be felons. Well, they, they had some big, burly-looking fuckers, and they put them in the back and had, you know, it looked like fucking Hook's illegitimate cousin in front. But anyway, so... MJF checks Wardlow and then he's, you know, for foreign objects and then he's going to let him out of the handcuffs, but son of a gun, he can't find the key. And when he can't find the key, Spears flies over there and jump starts it. And then they're, they're two on one beating the shit out of Wardlow while he's still handcuffed. And then Wardlow starts firing back on Spears, but MJF gets in front of him, dares him to punch him and spits in his face and Wardlow breaks the fucking cuffs, and there was a big pop. That was a perfect spot. And he makes the big comeback on Spears, and Spears tries to... Here was one of the two things coming up. Spears is trying to escape the cage. He's trying to climb over the top to get away from Wardlow, right? Within two to three minutes, they're going to show you, demonstrate that the cage door was never locked. 
So just these things. Uh, but he makes a comeback. Spears tries to leave. Wardlow stops him, bumps him in the ring, comes off the top with a senton. Wardlow, a senton off the top. What form? What agility? What target? He missed him. <laughs> I swear that was the only... It was, And the people popped anyway. But poor Wardlow, he went too far. He went straight over him. And... It just goes to show when he gets the range down, he can do the move because it was perfect. There was just nobody underneath it. Uh, but then as Wardlow went for a power bomb, MJF from behind kicks him in the balls and Spears hit a quick finish for a fast two count, but Wardlow still kicked out. And that's when Spears leaves and just opens the door. So did you notice that? Why was he climbing earlier if the door to the cage was not locked? You're right. I, I, but anyway, he was. So he leaves through the unlocked door. He gets a chair. He brings it in. MJF holds Wardlow. Spears swings. Wardlow ducks. Spears nails MJF. What a fucking bump. He did timber over it. He laid there motionless. And the people start chanting, you fucked up. And then... Spears does the slowly I turned, and there's Wardlow, and he grabs him three power bombs. A second referee runs in, one more power bomb on a chair, one, two, three, huge pop. I, I've, and, and there's a little bit of afterbirth here, but I just, I love that. And the only thing, if they'd have thought of this, and I guess, oh, goddamn, the UPS guy's bringing me some shit, leaving it in my driveway. I guess th this worked also, but I did a deal one time in Smoky Mountain where I, it was the same thing. I was the referee of, oh, God damn, I can't remember who it was now. Is it one of the Freedom Halls and Johnson City shows? But I'm the referee, and I'm taking up for the heel against the babyface. And we did a deal where the babyface makes his comeback, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly, the fucking heel tries to do something, but the babyface sidesteps and the heel runs into me and knocks me goofy and I'm laid down face down on the mat and the baby face fucking hits the heel with whatever he's going to do. Boom, covers him and grabs my limp hand and slaps the mat three times with it. So I was still the referee and I stand the, the referee of record still made the count. That might've been a cute little thing for Wardlow to do, but nevertheless, the people loved it. And then Wardlow grabs MJF and goes to fucking powerbomb him, but here comes security. And now they've got a reason to run at him one at a time because they're bottlenecked and log jammed at the cage door. So as they come through the cage door one at a time, boom, 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 boom. He took out 15 of them. And MJF escaped and got away and Wardlow's standing on that cage and the people are going crazy. This may be... It wasn't the best match they've ever done on their television, obviously, but this this may be for what it was supposed to do and the result it was supposed to get and the feeling you were supposed to be left with. This may be the best angle they've ever done, and it was under 15 minutes. What'd you think? I don't know if I would call it the best angle they've ever done, but I thought it was great. The only sad thing was you knew that it was going to all be downhill after this because typically the MJF Wardlow segments and the Punk segments are the highlights of the show. Looking forward to this match. If it's a one and done, it'll be interesting to see what they do. If it's going to be 
a series of matches. It'll still be interesting. But I'm going to reiterate my fears, especially after watching the booking of the rest of the show. I really hope they don't mess up Wardlow because they got <laughs> they got the chance to do something really, really cool here and have a special run for him. But you also need the booking to help out on the other side. Yeah. And that, you know, is up in the air. But I, I say I say it was the best angle because I'm trying to think of another one where the end turned out perfectly and you weren't it didn't go too long. There weren't too many extraneous people involved. It didn't take your mind off the point they were trying to make by the end of the thing. They were focused here. So I like that. I don't know. I mean, Cody and Jade is still in a league oh, of its own. I don't know. It's a league of its own. 20,000 leagues under the sea. Um, the Jericho appreciators were in the back bullying a production assistant. And. <laughs> After they do that, he just stand there staring at him. Suddenly, Jericho just jumps in and fucking throws a fireball in the guy's face, and he goes down screaming. And Jericho says, "I'm a wizard." I, he makes the audience disappear. <laughs> Even if he had hit Kingston with the fireball instead of setting the top of his head briefly on fire, if he'd hit him in the face with it, you don't then just go around throwing fireballs it at the fucking hot dog guy because that number one people will kind of accept that it happens in between the wrestlers amongst the wrestlers and they don't give it a lot of thought but when you start going around and beating up or setting fire to production assistants people that are just in the building but then it becomes completely ridiculous and it diminishes and and demeans the whole fireball deal to begin with when i when i threw fucking fire and set ronnie garvin's face on fire i got death threats legitimate multiple legitimate death threats he's burning miscellaneous crew members just to get a fucking cool camera shot do you think it was so he could show that he could do it because he missed kingston let's never forget that he completely missed him well, then it lived in burn another wrestler. Don't just, just, my God. In a throwaway this, backstage segment that lasted throw, a minute. Yeah, that that we've never seen this guy before and are never going to see him again. But we're supposed to be worried he's in the burn unit. And nobody ever referred to the motherfucker. It did, it did, I mean, I know I skipped through or zone out some of the announcer business. But did anybody ever come back and say, well, you know, poor Sam, he's been on the crew for three years and he's got a wife and kids and he's on his way to the burn unit now. No, they don't, they don't care because it was none of the announcers are going to talk about it because it was fucking stupid and fake to begin with. Well, get well soon, Sam. Sam. Sam, Sam, the TV man. <laughs> mm. It's ridiculous. The whole Jericho thing is ridiculous. He can't decide on a gimmick. So now he just has like 10 of them. He's a wizard. He's the leader of the appreciators. He's, what was it? The trademark infringer, whatever he was. <laughs> it's so bad. And everything he's involved with sucks so bad right now. Uh, but we do wish Sam good luck. Yes, Sam. And then let's see if we can save this show. It was good at the start. It went sideways for a second. But now, like a Mussolini. Selling pay-per-view. 
here he comes. This was bizarre, to say the least. Tony Schiavone in the ring with the face-to-face with Adam Page and CM Punk. And half of this looked like a sports event, and half of it looked like sports entertainment with some cosplaying kid having a mental meltdown. Tony's in the ring, Punk's in the ring. Tony goes to interview Punk first. He actually conducts the interview, holds the microphone. Punk doesn't try to take it away from him. A punk, babyface is all hell, loves the fans, and uh, he's looking forward to this weekend, and respectfully, he's going to walk out of that pay-per-view as the AEW champion. And then, Tony goes to hang mad Adam Page, who's already getting booed because of things he's done last week or two. He starts the promo with a heelish attitude and doesn't say a lot. But then Punk asks him why he's taking it so personally, and he puts him over. And Punk sounds real and matter-of-fact. You know, you've you've accomplished a lot. You've been, you know, you got a lot of fans. What You know, what's the fucking bee in your bonnet here? Who pissed in your post-toasties? And then Paige takes the micro- microphone away from Tony Schiavone. And now it becomes sports entertainment. And now we're not having two fighters on a UFC show being interviewed we're having a fucking wrestler who is still trying to talk himself into thinking he's over. And it shows he had a verbal meltdown. He said he would destroy, annihilate, and embarrass Punk. Not at double or nothing, but right now. And then he screamed at Punk about blowing him up with a pipe bomb. And I wrote, why is he screaming now for no reason at this calm guy that's standing in front of him? But then Paige said he realizes he can't destroy Punk tonight. It's not right to destroy him, but he will tell him off. And I'm like, what is he fucking saying? And one of his quotes was, hey, Punk, small, quiet moments make a champion. What? And uh, so then, (laughs) I mean, you heard all this, right? I heard it all. It was all over the page. He was screaming like a guy having a temper tantrum, trying to talk everybody else and himself into believing what he was saying with no conviction in his voice while Punk stood there and looked down his nose at him like, what's this guy's fucking issue? He was all over the place. He was First, he was going to destroy him tonight. Then he wasn't. Then it was the best thing if he gets gets him at the pay-per-view because Paige says, I care about AEW. It's my home, and I'll defend AEW from you. What, from the ratings you bring, from the publicity you brought, from the interest you brought, from, from the fact that you're over and I'm not? I'm going to protect AEW from all of that. And then when he was finished... I mean, maybe that, whatever he was supposed to say, if he'd have said it like he was supposed to say it, it might have made sense. Because I can't honestly imagine, I can imagine Tony Khan saying, go out there and say whatever you want to say. But I can't imagine Punk going out where he didn't know that the guy that he was going to be working with had some coherent statement to make 
even if he wasn't able to make it. Uh, but finally, when Paige was finished, he tried to give the microphone back to Punk, who let Tony take it, because Tony's the announcer and the host of the program. And then Punk resumes speaking. Well, you're you're talking in circles, and it's all a big riddle. <laughs> I don't think that was a pre-planned line. I think that was Punk realizing I have to respond to shit that nobody understood. So I'm going to acknowledge that I didn't really pick up on all of it without just wiping my feet on this fucking guy and telling him he's a complete gibbering idiot. But Punk then said, hey, the road you traveled to get here, I paved. And the lumber you used to build this house, I planted those trees and blah, blah, blah. And we're going to have a great contest this weekend, but you're going to shake my hand right now. And he tries to shake Paige's hand and Paige is telling him off and Punk shoves him and Paige punches him right in the face and Punk goes down and sells his jaw and laughs at him. I mean, if this was... If this was a shoot, you would assume that this smarter, experienced veteran just made this young, unproven champion have a complete nervous breakdown until he didn't even understand what he was saying himself. So he owned he owned his head, as they say. If it was a shoot, since it's a work, I think, that Paige just got completely lost and couldn't say Suey if the hogs had him because his tongue lopped over his eye teeth and he couldn't see what he was saying. What do you think? Well, Paige, clearly the last few weeks has been trying to turn it up a notch and maybe even respond to the criticism that he's been a feckless world champion. But there has been growing chatter that maybe there is some legitimate hurt feelings here. That maybe there are some issues whether CM Punk knows what they are or not, <laughs> that there may be some issues. And let me just lay out a scenario to you, something to think about here. You know, at the very beginning, all these guys who, you know, he's going to defend AEW against CM Punk or from CM Punk, whatever he said there. The very beginning, that first press conference and everything, it was the Bucks and Cody and Omega. And then it was like the second tier guys, like Adam Page. First time we saw MJF. At that time, they thought Jelly Nutella was going to be one of their stars. <laughs> Britt Baker, I think, like it was a long time ago. And what I think all of those guys know, and I think it's caused resentment several times, because I also don't think it's been hidden, is that they were all there from the beginning, but their boss wanted a couple other people there from the very beginning too. And that was CM Punk. And if we're going to tell the truth here, it was Jim Cornette. And both people didn't do it. We're, of course... Doing great. Well, you may not have listened to the Dodger, but we did things our own way, and we now have the two biggest fucking shows of all time. But those all guys know. Time. But those guys know CM Punk was someone who AEW was set up for. You could say in a way from the very beginning, he could have said yes, and he would have been there from the very beginning. And since he's been there, if you notice, Punk hasn't been messing too much with the pantload click out of Southern California and their friends. He's been dealing with people who can have legitimate, good, serious wrestling segments. MJF, Darby Allen. He's done a few different things. The Kingston thing, which sadly only went on like a week. But Punk's doing serious stuff at the same time that Punk is doing segments that are pretty much universally acclaimed. That he's drawing ratings, outselling everyone with merch, 
and he's also helping drive these pay-per-view numbers. At the same time, we have a world champion who, despite his in-match capabilities in the ring, has not inspired anyone. And in fact, it's gone the other way to even where the most hardcore AEW fan is questioning the entire title run of Adam Page, how he's been booked, how he's been used, and the fact that they went with him instead of looking at what was happening with Danielson and Punk about to come in. So that's a scenario I'm laying out to you. What do you think of that? That there's resentment maybe because of some of these things. I think Harley is upset at you. Did you hear that? She scoffed at you. I think, and honestly, yes, Paige's booking was rotten. I mean, we talked about it for years. What are they doing with this fucking guy? And I'm not going to go over all the many wrong things they did. He is good in the ring and he's athletic and he's a good looking kid. He would definitely be more over now if he had been booked as a singles top level babyface champion level attraction you know all the way through instead of what they did but i'm wondering now verbally and mentally i mean i don't think he does he does the same shit in every match he's not going to vary his matchup the blind moonsault all the stuff etc and it it's almost his wrestling style lends itself more to playing with the kids than to actually having the dramatic matches. He can be led, but he doesn't do it on his own. So I'm wondering if even if he had been booked right and was able to, as I said, you know, utilize, he can work, he can do the moves. He's very athletic. He looks good, but I think verbally and his psychology of how he does things or puts things together, I don't know that he would have, gotten over if they'd have booked him right. We'll never know because they didn't book him right for three years. But, I, you know, I'm wondering why I'm seeing other people now that they didn't do much for either surpassing him in terms of response and reaction and oomph. So we'll see. Maybe he's... Maybe he just needed to be, you know, old... Farm boy Adam Page and be in the middle somewhere and play with the dork order and that would have been great and he could have looked great in that atmosphere because he wouldn't have been at the top mix. I don't know. Well, here's the other thing. Beyond any palace intrigue that we're talking about here, like you said, none of this makes any sense. Why all of a sudden is he angry? Why all of a sudden is it AEW versus CM Punk? It made no sense. None of this makes any sense, yet this makes a lot more sense than some of the other things leading up to the pay-per-view. <laughs> Do you think they're going to have a title change on the pay-per-view? I certainly hope so. I re- Because, again, it's just, it's wasting the world title to not have it on not only one of the bigger stars, but also one of the guys who's performing ratings-wise and in the ring and with the interest of the people. And Paige is just another one of the guys that has regular matches. It's, you know, so yeah. And then, and then switch him heel and try to rehabilitate him, switch him full fledged heel, let punk win the belt and let page do something horrible and shocking and shameful and just tell everybody to piss off. You know, he's been a nice guy too long and whatever. And then use him as a single, give him some wins and see if he can figure out how to talk like a heel. Cause he can't talk like a baby face. 
Might work. Who knows? Before you cut bait on him, let's try that. You know, I think of Bret Hart. And I'm a big Bret Hart fan, and I think Bret Hart was worlds better than Adam Page as a world champion, even that first title run. But people look at that first title run as kind of like a trial run for what it would later be because it wasn't really that special. But the second time Bret got the world title, he felt like a world champion. Yeah. So it could happen. But, but, I, but, but he doesn't, but he's not really into <laughs> masturbatory Bret Hart comments. So maybe I shouldn't compare him to. Bret oh, Hart. yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, especially since Bret Hart was a bigger star and better worker and drew more money and had more fans than he will ever hope to attain in his entire life. So, speaking of masturbatory, they put it all out on the next one. Here They had not only William Regal, but every member of the Jericho Appreciators at the desk. So there were nine people, I think, at the desk doing color. Private Party make an entrance. Moxley and Eddie Kingston jump them on the floor. They attempt to have a match, same thing as every week. Moxley and Kingston win. And immediately the Jericho Appreciators attack. And they have a fake fight on the floor. Did you see some of the body punches that were being thrown? And did you see some of Jericho's elbows? I can't remember who he had, but he had a guy, and he was just, he was like he was playing patty cake. He was fake elbowing the guy over and over on top of the head. And it just, and then here come the referees, and here comes Brian Danielson. And they tear up a bunch of shit at ringside, and they all leave, and there wasn't, if there was one good-looking stiff shot thrown, it wasn't on camera. Uh, but again, just a, a bad match. The baby faces jumpstart the thing. They have a bad match. Uh, then they have a fake fight on the floor with 15 people. That's pretty much the Jericho segment every week now. Um, but then they're going. They're like going odd and even. Good and bad. Good segment, bad segment. Good segment, bad segment. So that was a bad segment. It's time for a good segment. The Ring of Honor tag team title, FTR defending. They brought Caprice Coleman in to be on color. That, that, you know what? It was so refreshing to hear somebody that I actually wanted to listen to that sounded like they wanted to be there. He was great, and I even enjoyed him more here than I did the last few times I heard him with Ian in Ring of Honor. And it's nothing against Ian, but... Maybe just the fact that he had that arena and that noise behind him. Because he's a guy that calls it like a sporting event. Yeah. I really liked it. He was great here. I hope Tony does more with him. Um, He could certainly replace excrement next week and be just fine. But anyway, FTR defended against Trent and Rocky Romero. And here, Rocky Romero seems to be serious about being a wrestler. He's not the biggest dog in the fight, but everything I've seen of him, he was serious. Rocky Romero seems to be serious about being a wrestler. Every time I've seen him, he's serious. Not the biggest dog in the yard, but he's athletic and he tries hard. And when he came in, they stuck him with the pudding gang just because of whatever they do in Japan. Like anybody would fucking know if if they want to use Rocky Romero. Hey, here's a young, talented athlete. We're not going to put him with Chucklefuck and the rest of the goofballs so you don't think he's an idiot. We're going to let his talent speak for itself. But no, so he's partners with Trent, who always said his work was fine. 
but he's deader than four o'clock because he's been killed by his shit partner and his mother in her minivan. So they had a good tag team match here, but the thinking that anybody would be interested in Trent and Rocky Romero, that's for reasons I just mentioned, that's sad, but they had a nice tag team match serious and a good pace. Then they got a couple sets of heat, got heat on cash first, come back, went to the break heat on Dax second. If, if I'd have seen Trent and Rocky before I saw Trent and chuckle fuck, I wouldn't, have a problem. Well, and if his mother and her minivan hadn't been involved, I wouldn't have a problem with Trent. But finally, it went back and forth, got just a bit busy, and then Rocky and Trent hit a false finish, and suddenly, here comes. I remember Jeff Cobb. We saw him once about a year and a half ago on this program. But here comes down the aisle, Jeff Cobb, and Grado Khan. Is Grado Khan the Japanese cousin of Grado from the UK? I thought he was the Japanese cousin of Tony Khan. Well, is another Khan, but Grado Khan. I've so they hit the ring, and I wrote, "Why? Who? What?" It's a disqualification. Ringing the bell. They attacked everybody, both teams, and this took a good, solid tag team match with professionals into the realm of outlaw mud show. They completely, did you see the botched double team on Dax? I did. So old Jeff Cobb picks Dax up in a fireman's carry over his shoulder and Grado hits the ropes and comes off like for a fucking RKO neck break or whatever and fucking jumped up and grabbed Dax's head and then fell in a heap on the ground and then once that his partner hit the floor that's when Jeff Cobb went with the rest of the move and it, it and then they power bombed Dax through a table and then they set up another table outside on the floor and Grado who was wearing a white glove and apparently we were told by Sockface that he uses the claw as his finish. God damn it. Did you see the phantom claw? We were in Lewiston, Maine, the phantom punch all over again. Brian, did you slow-mo it like I did when I couldn't believe my eyes the first time? I didn't, but I should have. Grado gets a phony claw on Trent. And he's barely, he's not even, not even like a Von Eric claw where they put some oomph into it, but he's just got his hand on the guy's face and they both together walk up. He's got the guy's face in a fake claw and Trent is like walking with him. Like he has no other choice. And they go to the fucking apron of the ring and you could see the daylight between this guy's hand and Trent's head. And then Grado goes to choke claw slam Trent off the apron through the table and lost his grip. And Trent obviously and plainly and visibly just jumped up and off the apron and went with it anyway. So he took a phantom claw slam off the apron of the ring through the table. I feel so sorry for FTR. If they're not working with amateurs, they've got amateurs running in. They've got amateurs booking them. They've got amateurs in the ring against them. They've got amateurs doing angles in their matches afterwards. 
And I... God almighty. Must be like a fucking heart surgeon going into a goddamn first aid class in sixth grade. So that was that. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. You liked it a little more than I did. I think the crowd being disinterested hurt it. And I think the fact that FTR was so over, they got a major pop coming out. And then maybe this said something about how many people pay attention to New Japan in that audience in Las Vegas. How many know Rapungi Vice? How many would be excited by Rapungi Vice? But it didn't seem like anyone thought they would win and didn't seem like too many people cared about the match. And then the post-match angle, which... Nice to see Jeff Cobb there and whoever his friend is. But that went on way too long like everything does. And it was a train wreck. And if anything, if there's one positive I hope comes out of this, and I'm pretty optimistic about this one, I hope FTR gets to work in New Japan a little bit because we'll get to see some more FTR matches that are serious without any shenanigans. Well, if this bunch of fucking chuckle fucks is from New Japan, I don't hold out a lot of hope for that to happen. Yeah, you're not wrong. What am I saying? Yeah. So the next match was our triple threat for the evening. Ricky Starks versus Swerve Strickland versus Jungle Boy. You know they have these three ways a lot, Brian. You've seen them before. So that's why I thought that it would be preferable for everybody to just go back to the last fucking clip on the YouTube channel of me talking about an AEW triple threat match and just listen to that because there's nothing different. It's always all the same and it makes no sense. Swerve won this time. And then Hobbs attacked and then here came Dino Douche and then here came Keith Lee. And when Keith Lee was making his entrance, everybody stopped fighting in the middle of the ring to stand there and watch him walk in. Did you notice that? I did. There's Dino and fucking who the who the fuck he was fighting with, Hobbs. And, of course, Dino makes Hobbs look like shit because Hobbs is a future superstar, but he hits the fucking idiot in the dinosaur mask and it doesn't kill him and it looks like shit. But anyway... <laughs> They all stand there. They just stop fighting and stand and watch Keith Lee get in the ring. And then all three of the big guys have a short, sloppy fight. And Dino and Hobbs ended up on the floor standing next to each other, even though they're enemies. And so Keith Lee could flip over the top. And I use the word flip loosely. It was like a rhinoceros rolling down a hill. He rolled over the top rope and on top of both of them, wiped them both out on the floor. So this, this was an angle after birth with, I don't know which was worse, the rotten layout or the piss poor execution. But that's what happened there. Did I miss anything in the triple threat match that doesn't always happen every week? I'm not a big fan of these matches. I'll say this. To me, Jungle Boy's become a non-entity. Ricky Starks is ready for more. They should do more with him. They're wasting the TNT title. No one gives a fuck about that right now. No one cares about Scorpio Sky or any of that. Do something more with Ricky Starks. And the other thing is... Hobbs. And Hobbs, of course, but Ricky Starks. We always bring up Hobbs, and Ricky Starks gets left behind. Even his manager left him behind. I don't know what happened to Taz. <laughs> Where is Taz? I, that's Where another is question. Taz? Where's Big Show? Where's Mark Henry? They're all hanging out of catering, I guess, but... The other thing I was going to say, and I said a little bit about this last time, Swerve Strickland, this guy has shown more personality, he's shown more in the ring, more creativity, everything, more confidence here than he 
ever did in NXT. Right now, they got him with Keith Lee. We'll see how far they go with that. But he's got, they got something with him they could really run with. He's got size. He could talk. He's got a look. He's athletic. He's bigger than I thought he was in NXT. How big a boy is he? <laughs> what times What times his brother get off? But of next work? time you see Swerve, give him a fair look because I I've been pretty. I will if he's if he's not. I said last week I liked his promo, and if if he's not in a three way or a four way or a six way or whatever, I'll watch him next time. But Do you I th- just couldn't. Okay. I couldn't stand that. What do I think? Nah, forget it. Ah, forget it. Dan Lambert. Goddamn, at this point, he's just writing the shit down on a fucking piece of poster board and reading it off, isn't he? He's got so many cute lines that he has to memorize to get them in that he just rattled it off like he was reading the phone book. There was no, there was no pause. There was no inflection. There's no, it's just reading the cute material. And like you said, nobody cares about Sky. Nobody cares about the other page. I don't know why they're still doing this. And also, we don't know who the fuck is supposed to be. Where was Sammy and Bitchface either on this program? Seemingly, they've been kept off TV for a little bit. And also, they were alluding to the fact that the TNT title was destroyed or ruined. And I don't know what the hell they're talking about. We haven't seen any of that on the show either. Maybe it's on TNT. Tony had interview duty a lot, and he's especially with the women. He interviewed Thunder Rosa, which. She did a promo that was quite a bit better than poor old Serena Deeb's last week. And then he's in the back moments later with Red Velvet and Ruby, 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 I started to say Ruby Sky, Ruby Ruby Soho. And Red Velvet gets to say shit in a backstage pre-tape. One of the lower rung girl talents on the roster gets to say shit. For what fucking reason? Yeah, they don't even they don't even try to keep their shit special. And then we had the Owen Hart tournament match with Britt Baker and Tony Storm. And I started watching this and I got distracted and I forgot to finish watching it. But Britt Baker won. What did I miss? I didn't really care. I didn't watch. Okay. Then let's get to the fucking main event of the match. Because after all that, that's why I was going to ask about the ratings. I can believe that whatever they started with, they kept it through the first 15 minutes because that was dynamite. Wardlow and Spears and MJF and et cetera. The Jericho appreciators stunk the joint out, but it was only a short backstage pre-tape. Then it was punk and page, so I'm thinking they kept people fairly well there. Then we had the, you know, 15-man garbage wrestling Moxley fight thing. But then we were, it was followed by a good tag team match with FTR. But then the bad angle after FTR and the triple threat match with goofballs and the Lambert promo and Rosa promo and Velvet promo and Britt Baker and Tony Storm. Who did they have left by the time we got to Samoa Joe and Kyle O'Reilly? Are you asking for the numbers now? That's what I'm asking. Before we go to the main event, they had a pretty good first hour, all things considered, and then that long period of shite with nobodies. Did they lose people by the end, or did they stick around to see Joe and O'Reilly? I have the quarterly breakdowns here from the Wrestling Observer newsletter this week. 
It says that the audience did huge numbers until the NBA game started. Oh, that, well, that's a convenient excuse. What time did the NBA game start? About the time the shitty segment started? <laughs> we'll find out in a moment. The first segment, Wardlow versus Sean Spears in the cage with MJF. 1,126,000 viewers. Wow. For them, that's a number. The second segment, which says here, Chris Jericho throwing fire, which lasted a minute, and the Adam Page CM Punk face-to-face did 1,051,000 viewers. So they dropped about, what, close to 100,000. The game then started at this point. Coincidentally, when the Jericho Appreciation Society came out. (laughs) But uh, the numbers were still high for this segment. Moxley and Kingston versus Private Party. Hey, guys, remember when the Bucks put over Private Party making them stars? Yeah, nobody else does, but we do because we wrote it down. This match did a million viewers. Following that, we had FTR versus Rapungi Vice. 876,000 viewers. Yeah. Then we had Cobb and the Great Okan's attack on FTR and the Hardy promo as well. Oh, as I forgot about the Hardys. They were in there running their mouths. And then, <laughs> and then a, the uh, three-way match, 850,000 viewers. Ooh, okay. The end of the three-way match, the Lambert and Crew promo and the Thunder Rosa promo and Velvet Sky and Ruby Went to 842,000 viewers. Not as big a drop as I was feared it might be. No, that was the next segment. Britt Baker versus Tony Storm. <laughs> oh, after they saw that, they gave up. 822,000 viewers. Mm. And then that rose back up for Joe versus O'Reilly, the 863,000 viewers. So they ended up coming, they got 40,000 back, but they were still. 250 or 300,000 below at the end of the show what they started with. Yeah, the NBA. All right, anyway, let's go back to that main event because I I said I think my my I would like to have seen Adam Cole and Kyle O'Reilly cuz they've had good matches in the past. Um but my hope was that Samoa Joe would go all the way with this thing and that they wouldn't beat him, and so far, so good. And I knew this was going to be a good match because these guys give a shit, and they're not going to do any funny, phony, hokey, square-dancing fucking, you know, (laughs) grabbing a hold of each other and flipping about and holding each other up. It started like a fight, strikes and grappling and shooting for the leg. Joe lands those heavy chops and he manhandles O'Reilly and comes off like a badass. And by the way, now that Samoa Joe has joined the party, do you see Keith Lee has dropped a rung or two again and and might not even know it? Well, he's now a tag team competitor currently. Well, it doesn't matter. You got a big, badass, 300-plus-pound fucking Greyhound bus that's a killer. And Samoa Joe, he can also talk and he can also work and he can also look like a badass instead of talking like Fraser Crane and smelling invisible farts on his way to the ring. Keith Lee is losing more and more fucking of the things that made him unique when other people have him. Anyway, Joe had a weakness. He had the bad shoulder slash arm where Jay Lethal and 
Sanjay and Zippy the Pinhead had hit him with the lead pipe. So they get heat on the bad shoulder and arm. And O'Reilly's active and vicious with that. But finally, Joe makes a comeback. People were chanting for him. He goes for the muscle buster. O'Reilly fights out into the fucking Fujiwara arm bar. Joe gets the ropes. They're having a wrestling match. And then finally O'Reilly, because he's a heel, rips off Joe's arm wrap and the tape and everything. And he's really going to dig in, but Joe fights back. They're trading kicks. O'Reilly goes for a roll-up, and Joe rolls through it and gets the fucking rear naked choke. And not only does Kyle pass out, but before he does, he foams at the mouth. It looked great. Joe wins. Rear naked choke. O'Reilly looked great in him doing it, and they actually had a professional-style wrestling match on this program. So I was happy to see that instead of the way they've been closing the past several weeks. But then Adam Cole's music played, and out he comes, and then my DVR froze. So I don't know if anything happened. I don't know about it. Did that sum up the main event there, Brian, last? Good match. I sincerely hope they don't put Adam Cole over Samoa Joe. I completely think they're going to put Adam Cole over Samoa <laughs> Joe and Britt Baker will win the other tournament. And I just, that would be insane. It, it, there's no reason for Cole not to do jobs now. He's been beat by everybody so far, but if they would tell people that he can be beaten by pockets, but Samoa Joe can't handle him. What the fuck would that be all about? And by the way, it's been a couple of weeks since we've seen that piece of shit with his hand stuck in his crotch. You think maybe Tony finally smartened up about that, got a little buyer's remorse, went on to the new occupant of the clown car, Danhausen? I don't know. I thought we heard he got hurt, Pockets. Oh, well, how would you know? He looks pretty fucking emaciated anyway. Bigger than Adam Cole. Well, I didn't say he was prisoner of war-like. I just said he was emaciated. But, you know, that's uh, that's AEW for this past week, and all I've got to say is Samoa Joe is a mean motor scooter and a bad go-getter. But, folks, if your motor scooter won't go get her, wherever she is, down the block or in the next state, that means you need to do some maintenance. Whether your car, your truck, your motor scooter, your bicycle, your tricycle, your unicycle, your boat, your plane, your train, or your motorized conveyance, if none of those will run, and actually everybody has at least one of those hanging around, you need parts, you need maintenance, you need to fix this shit. Brian, have you fixed your shit lately? My shit's good. Your shit's good? Well, my shit's even better. You know, I was worried about my brakes, but then I broke them off and shoved them up somebody's ass. And right now, folks, you can fix your car, truck, etc., etc., with all the parts it will ever need, courtesy of our friends at rockauto.com. That's right, they're a family business. The Bonanno family. They've been breaking arms and... That's and not the family the that rocket. owns Rock Auto. That's no, not, it's a different family. It's a different family. RockAuto.com's family is, is a nice family. And they have several generations have been involved. They've been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. And back before that, they served them out of the trunk of a car, the old way, the way that it used to be. And still to this day, if you go to RockAuto.com, you'll get the lowest prices 
and the widest selection available for anything that your vehicle needs from parts to carpet. And the price is always reliably low because they're the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. So save your money for more important things like mortgage, food, hookers, and join the revolution of rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts that your car will ever need. As a matter of fact, the last time I got some parts for my car, they were so good, I had three or four of them some bitches left over when I was finished fixing it. So I started fixing another car. And the guy that owned that car was pissed because he said it wasn't broke, but I fixed it anyway. And folks, when you go to rockauto.com, write JCE in the how did you hear about us box, and they'll know that what to do from there, they will have a governmental agency keeping an eye on you because you're part of my crowd. rockauto.com, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com. Dot com. All right. Well, before we jump into a little classic wrestling as a palate cleanser, what are they doing? Your minions over there at the Arcadian Vanguard Network, all the programs, what's going on this week? Lots of exciting things happening this week. But speaking of minions, I should make mention if you hear some noise, Julio and his minions are outside right now. Is he down by the schoolyard? He's doing whatever he does to the grounds here at Last Manor, but he's making a lot of noise at an inopportune time. Thanks, Julio. This week on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, check out all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. This week on Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon, Brian's guest is Brian Greenberg from the film I Like to Hurt People. Hear all about the chic and, of course, this famous mockumentary about Detroit wrestling. When did you first see it, Jim? Oh my God. It, well, it, it wasn't released for what, 10 years after it was shot. And then it came, whenever it came out on VHS, I think is when I saw it. We'll hear all about the inner workings, the behind the scenes of the film. I like to hurt people on shut up and wrestle with Brian Solomon. I saw some of the stuff actually shot. They were shooting footage for that in 1976 in Indianapolis with the Sheik and Bruiser at at Market Square Arena in the cage. So, and then 10 years later, I saw the finished movie. Hear all about the finished movie. SUAWpod.com or Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This week on Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam, John's guest is Jim Valley. And they're talking 1987. Who was the best wrestler? What was the best match? Find out all of that and so much more. 1987 Wrestling Talk with John McAdam and Jim Valley. Stick to wrestling with John McAdam, wherever you find your favorite podcast, or mcadampod.com. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Membership! Go through the archive today at 605pod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcast. Something in the works, stay tuned, but go through the archive. The Membership! I take pleasure in the fact that I know you hurt yourself doing that. That last one was rough. And it was a good one. And then you gave me the uh, pity. All right. uh, We're going to go even further back than 1987. What we're doing now is we're going back to 1985 because we started this several months ago. And then 
WrestleMania season started happening, things started happening, we didn't follow up on it. But the question was raised, gosh, sometime last year, that we should investigate this when the Midnight Express finished their run in Mid-South Wrestling in Louisiana in 1984, went to Dallas in 1985. If we had not gone to Dallas, where would we have liked to have gone? Where would we have gone? That was the the fictitious question that was raised. And Where could you have gone? Where could we have gone? And what we did in the first segment, we, which I guess is on YouTube. I don't know what the title of it is if people wanted to look it up. Do you? Oh, great one. I will find the title in a moment. Well, find that, find that title and name that tune. But we did the territories that had gone out of business in the previous few years at that point the, that weren't still an option and whether we would have done that. And basically, the territories, those were Bruisers, Indianapolis, and the Indiana Territory, uh, the Sheiks, Detroit, and Ohio, uh, Mike LaBelle's Los Angeles, Roy Shire, San Francisco, the Funks, Amarillo Territory, and Sam Muchnick in St. Louis. And off the top of my head, and of course, I should know since it was my opinion to begin with, I believe we said that we would have loved to work for Sam Muchnick in St. Louis, even though that wasn't a full-time territory, but he retired before we got together. We would have loved to work for the Funks in Amarillo just to for the learning experience of working with the Funks. Same thing for the Shires promotion in San Francisco. Um, L.A. was not particularly high on the list, and we wouldn't have done that even. <laughs> the last time you made money in that territory was like 1975. Um, and, you know, Bruiser's Indianapolis was one of those ones because it was close. They liked bleach blonde heel teams. The Valiant Brothers worked there, but there wasn't any money past the, you know, early and mid seventies there. And the same thing kind of for Sheik in Detroit and Ohio, except he had a bigger territory, but it had long since, you know, the bloom had been off the rose, but there are still as of January, 1985, a variety of full-time territories in the United States, all with local regional television programs on all the TV markets in their area, and those promotions still operating in some capacity or other, were Florida, Georgia, Continental, Memphis, Crockett in the Carolinas, Mid-South, World Class in Dallas, San Antonio, the AWA, Central States, Kansas City, Calgary, uh, potentially, we've we've talked about that with an asterisk because they closed down in, what, 84, 85, and then they opened up again in a year later when when Vince reneged on the deal. Uh, Portland, the WWF, of course, Montreal, Puerto Rico, and uh, as well, uh, Al Tomko was still working in Vancouver. Nova Scotia, there was something going on. Savoldi's ICW, and we're not going to Japan or Germany or Europe or whatever. And California Championship Wrestling, that's where you're going to end up. And and no, and hell no. Uh, that that wasn't real, even if there was some entertaining local television out of it. So anyway, the 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 chain of events, and we'll go over it real quick. Longtime listeners know is that when we finished in Mid-South Wrestling in December of 1984, 
we were we had already been scheduled to go to work for Jim Crockett in the Carolinas because both Dusty and Flair had come into Mid-South and we'd worked with Dusty in the Superdome in August. I think it was August, September. Flair had seen us when he came in for matches with Kerry Von Erich. Um, so they had made the invitation. We didn't have to ask. And that's both the booker and the top star. So we were pretty safe in that invitation. So we, when we found out from Bill Dundee that we'd be finishing up and putting the Rock and Roll Express over in scaffold matches around the territory, we called Crockett, got a start date. And that's when then we were called back by Bill Dundee and or Bill Watts at various times because they wanted us to go to Dallas and work for Fritz so that they could still get us for big shows like the Superdome, Oak City, whatever the case, back in the Mid-South Territory. So out of loyalty and a sense of um, duty to the Cowboy and Dundee, we called Crockett back, told him the situation, we were going to go to Dallas. So that's what we did. And so we will take uh, Dallas and World Class off the list of places that we would have gone because we already went there, right? But having said that, we've talked about there were positives and negatives, the Dallas Territory. The positives were we were only working five days a week, sometimes six. So that and and once a week was in Dallas, once a week was in Fort Worth, which was 20 miles both of them from our apartments. So the travel was much better, mostly. We just got finished with a year in Mid-South with, you know, seven days a week working and the double shots on Sundays, plus a six-hour interview session every Wednesday, two hours from our house. So that was a pretty full schedule, and we were doing three to 4,000 miles a week in, in the car on the, the bad weeks, 2,500 on the good weeks. So the schedule in Dallas was better, but also the money was about half of what we were making in Louisiana. And we enjoyed being in a a city like Dallas where you could actually go to a restaurant once in a while with this new free time we had because there was nothing of that in Louisiana. If we did end up in Baton Rouge or New Orleans or Houston or Oak City, a fairly big city, we couldn't really go out in public that much because people knew who we are and it would start a fight. So we got rest in Dallas, lesser schedule, half the money, but we got a chance to rest up our, our bodies and our minds. Uh, it was a smaller talent roster in Dallas, but at the same time, the I've talked about Ken Mantell's booking. It was just, it was simple and easy they didn't give a lot of complicated finishes to the boys, the Von Erich boys. They, I've never understood Mantell's booking. It was just, he was kind of a babysitter and writing names down on cards. Their business, where it was working, it was working, and where it didn't, it didn't. And nothing you did at that point really made any difference in it. The Freebirds and the Von Erichs had had Dallas and the Metroplex as hot as it could ever be. And it was still fairly hot when we got there. If you were in Dallas or Fort Worth, one of the big shows or that Metroplex area 100 miles around, that was great. Trips were short. Houses were okay. Payoffs were decent. 
You'd go to Arlington, five miles from our apartment, do a $15,000 gate at a spot show at a high school gym. And by the way, in 1985, a dollar is the same thing as $2.68 today. So if you made $100, that was the equivalent of 268 bucks. This jives with my Wendy's calculator also. You know about the Wendy's calculator? No. You calculate the price of a triple combo then and today. And then you see if the inflation calculator is about right. And in 1985, Wendy's triple combo was just under $5. And now can you get out of there for like 11? So it's about right. Anyway, so the booking was blah. It was a smaller roster. We've mentioned our frustration. We loved working with the Fantastics, but not every night for six months. We went in and because of the Mid-South run that we'd had, I learned shit every week under Bill Watts and watching Bill Dundee and watching the way that the finishes were put together and the TV was shot. The only thing I learned in Dallas was the stuff that I could pick up on my own, how to be more comfortable doing longer open-ended TV interviews, just getting more experience. You didn't learn anything from the booking, learn anything from the way the TV was put together, maybe some of the production. But it was just, it was simple. And it, and when the Fantastics and Midnight started doing, because the Von Erichs were great athletes and they were over like God, but nobody ever claimed they were smooth workers. And when you got a smooth worker like Gino Hernandez or Chris Adams that had to work with the Von Erichs, they had to protect themselves because you never knew what was coming. As Dennis Condry used to say, it was like being in an easy street fight working with the Von Erichs. You thought so, Gino was a smooth worker? Well, come, I mean, overall, let's, I hate to speak ill of the dead. Gino was an okay worker. Gino Hernandez's legacy and or mystique has grown. He was a great talker and he looked good and he worked the gimmick. His work was, to my opinion, dealing with like a Carolinas territory or high-level NWA territory. His work was average. It got the point across. But he was a lot smoother than the boys. But they liked working with Chris and Gino also because they were homesteaders and they would always put them over even though they would try to, Chris and Gino would try to keep the heat amongst the other heels on the roster. They wanted to have more heat than them, but they always wanted to put the boys over in the end because that's how they knew they kept their job. And nobody was honestly beating their door down, asking them to go anywhere else at that point. And they were figured in and the guys that worked with the Von Erichs got paid better we made in six months there we made twenty six thousand dollars me and the midnight express that's a thousand dollars a week that's okay that's the equivalent of twenty six hundred today but it was less than half of what we knew we could be making but i would think that gino and chris probably made maybe 80 or 100 working with the von erics in that same territory so they didn't need to go. We wanted to go. So we loved the short trips, and we got a rest. The booking was bleh, and we knew we had bigger fish to fry, which is why we finally left and went to work for Crockett. But if that had not come up, where would we have gone? Obviously, we were already booked to go to work for Jim Crockett Promotions, and that was the place we wanted. That was our number one on our list. If we hadn't already been invited, we would have been trying to go there. Because that was the NWA territory where guys were making the most money at that time. There was the most potential uh, for big crowds, 
for big money. Uh, Dennis had worked there. Well, he, he broke in there as a referee in the early 70s because of his brother-in-law, Joe Turner. And he had been there and seen the money that the guys made and the fact that wrestling was over in that part of the country. And do we want to live in North Carolina? Absolutely. Charlotte, North Carolina, beautiful. It's, it wasn't as big then as it was as it is now. It's like a goddamn northern city now, but back there, there was trees and green. The weather was good. Wrestling was the biggest sport in the area. The wrestlers were kings. And Dusty's the booker. He likes us. Flair's the world champion. He likes us. Jim Crockett's the promoter. He's going to be the one paying us. Uh, the TV, and they had just gotten TBS as well as their syndicated shows in the Carolinas. So that was the place to go. And it wasn't just because we got with the rock and roll and popped the thing and got hot that we made a lot of money. Guys, in that period of time, the top guys were still making six figures before things got real hot. And I get that was, I don't know if we've ever actually said this you know, straight out, but in those days, the 70s and 80s, the territory days, if you could get a spot somewhere where you were making a hundred grand a year, you considered yourself as being very successful in the wrestling business. And there were a number of guys, maybe not all territories had anybody making a hundred grand. And in Memphis, they had one, it was Lawler. In other territories, there might be a few. But well, when you look at, go ahead. I'm just curious. I never thought about it in this context, and I know Lawler had a better deal than everyone, and I know especially after 77 what the deal was or what it was supposed to be and then what it was. Bill Dundee never cracked 100? Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, I, I, I'm sure he did, especially when he was booking and working and, and the run in the early 80s. and that Because I'm pretty sure he probably made... Well, I know in 1977, he made six grand for two matches where he got his head shaved and his wife got her head shaved. In 1977 from now, six grand would be fucking 30-something in two nights. Um, but I mean, on a regular basis, and especially by the time 1985 rolled around, because the Memphis was having issues by then. Jackie Fargo, the legend was in 1971, 71 or 72. He made a hundred grand working for Nick Goulas, which is almost unheard of and almost impossible to believe, except Fargo was on top in the entire territory then. It hadn't been split off. He was main event in Memphis. He was main event in Birmingham, Chattanooga, Nashville. And he was the guy. And Chattanooga was drawing 5,000 people every week and Nashville 3,000 or whatever. And Memphis, he was on top the first sell out at the Coliseum with Al Green. So those things happened. But normally your top heel on your top baby face on the roster in Memphis, you know, if if you had thousand, twelve, thirteen hundred dollar weeks, that was good money in hot periods. And then they would bring in guys like Idol who would get a guarantee or whatever. But still the point is in all the territories, there were numerous guys making six figures, the big stars in wrestling. Ver, uh, Nick Bockwinkle told me this was in 1982. He worked for Ganya, and this has been happening since the 70s. They only ran 16, 18 days a month. 
but they were almost all major markets, and Vern had small cards but big names on them, so he paid well. Bockwinkle was making over $100,000 a year working, like I said, 16, 18 days a month in Minneapolis for Vern, which would be 300 plus today. And he had so many days off, he was able to go and work shots in Memphis or work shots in Georgia or Houston, where he ended up buying in with Bosch for a while. And so, you know, Nick Bockwinkel, is, was he going to hit maybe almost 200 grand one of those years? Would that be over half a million a day? Sure. He was one of the elite, but he wasn't the elite because the NWA champion was on top of that. And so was Andre. And so was Bruno, whatever. Anyway. Hey, in terms of managers, did Heenan ever tell you what was the first time? Did he make 100000 a year before Vince? No. Well... I mean, you know what? He probably did with Vern, but he, see, that's why Bruiser never paid him anything. And see, think about this. Heenan, besides shots, made a few shots in Memphis when Jared had the deal with Vern and made some in Georgia when Nick went down there. But Heenan really only full-time went from working for Bruiser for, what, eight years? And then working for Vern for eight years, nine years, and then working for Vince until he went to WCW at the end of his career. So Vince made him more money until he got the WCW contract. But I would imagine, especially as figured in as he was, he had $100,000 years for Vern. But he he made... Uh, Probably by, by the time Hogan got there, 82, 83. That would, I don't know if he would yeah. have before then. That that would have probably been it with those big houses, and he was you know figured in and managing whoever Hogan was working with. But still, okay in the late seventies, if he'd have made eighty, that'd be the same thing as two hundred and something a day. So, the uh, point is, there were places where guys could make money, and that's if you considered the hundred thousand dollar mark as to be I'm very successful in wrestling back then. That's what we were going for, and that was the Carolinas, you could do it. Flair and Valentine had done that in the late 70s as world tag team champions. And it was just, it was a money territory. The change in bookers from the setup that they had had with, who was it? God, it was Dory. And they had three bookers, one for North Carolina, South Carolina, and and Virginia. Gary Hart was in that too. Gary Hart, Dory, and somebody else, and they changed to to Dusty. And a lot of the old guys left, a lot of new guys came in. It was a rebuilding period, but by 85, like I said, they'd gotten the TBS Saturday night slot. They had strong TV. They had decades of, you know, standing in the Carolinas, and they were already doing some business, and they're going to do another Starcade. So... We wanted to go there. Let's say we couldn't have. Let's say there was a big fence around that territory or whoever ran it hated us. We couldn't get in. So we've ruled out world class because that's where we went. We've ruled out Crockett because we can't go there. And we've ruled out Mid-South because we just left there. So now it starts narrowing down. Now you've got to start making some choices between finances and what territory would fit you the best. And I mentioned that in the AWA, they were making great money. And But Vern, at the same time, was old-fashioned. They were smaller cards. They were older guys on the card. They were more 
Midwest names, Bockwinkle, Stevens, Mad Dog, Crusher, bigger guys in most part, but in 1980, wasn't it 85, they started as a team in Randall 86, but gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and Steve Regal were at one time during that period of time, the top heel team in the AWA, and they're the ones when the Road Warriors decided to go to work for Crockett full time, the Road Warriors put the belts on Garvin and Regal, and they did some kind of kabuki-ish switch so that the Road Warriors could do a job without really doing too much of a job. But Regal and Garvin were kind of Midnight Express flavored. They were the same size. Uh, Jimmy was not, you know, the worker that Bobby Eaton was, but he could talk and he had the pretty boy heel look. And Steve Regal, and that's not to be confused with the current William Regal, but Steve Regal, Wilbur Snyder's son-in-law, he was a tremendous worker and athletic and fucking in shape. And and then they had Precious, so they had a package. So Vern would use the pretty boy heel teams. He didn't really understand all the modern gimmicks when he brought the Fabs in. He couldn't understand why they were over and kind of sabotaged them. But for an easy schedule, and for making the most money, the AWA would have been a place to consider. But they're, like I said, they moved at a snail's pace in terms of the exposition of the programs and the angles. There weren't a lot of guys on the card. There was not a lot of variety. And, you know, I, I don't know that we had a ton of prospective opponents. I don't know how the Midnight Express versus Crusher and Mad Dog would have come off. If you had gone there at the beginning of 85, you still could have potentially had Midnight Express against Gagne and Brunzel, and then yeah. Brunzel jumped. <laughs> um, the other thing yeah. is, if you had gone there in 85, you and the Midnight Express would have likely had Remco action figures. Oh, joy. And whatever royalties came from that. Um, I'm Well, I hate to miss out on that. I think I would have done better in the AWA than the Midnight Express. Because Vern had showed he, he liked a manager that could talk, but I would have probably been put with goddamn Crusher Blackwell or something. And I loved Crusher Blackwell, but... um. So And then uh, the, the problem would be living in Minneapolis. Here's me and Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry, Southern boys, we're going to go to the coldest place in the country. And then we'd be flying to every event. You know, Denver's a flight. Chicago's a flight. You can't drive any of those towns. That's why they flew everywhere. Uh, you know, and the TV show kind of blew because the interviews were great, but they never had a main event match except once a year. So I don't know whether we would have been exposed and portrayed to our our best advantage. And while it was a lucrative territory, we would have, did I mention, have to live in fucking Minneapolis. And it gets cold up there. However, if I could ask a question while playing devil's advocate, this is early 85, so you're still pretty young. Yeah. I mean, they're still able to talk you to going on planes and jumping on scaffolds and all sorts oh, yeah. of shit. Yeah. Dennis has been around a while, but Bobby, this is, you know, his first big break. I mean, it was a year earlier that he got his first big break. If you had gone up to the AWA in 85, yeah, centered out of Minneapolis, so you would have gotten a nice summer, but that's the year they were doing Pro Wrestling USA. So you would have been working on shows on the East Coast. You would have been working at the Meadowlands in Baltimore. 
So that's another thing to think about. You would have been traveling more than the average AWA wrestler. And that's also the year they run Atlantic City and they open up Vegas. Yeah. And, but they were in conjunction, Pro Wrestling USA, the AWA was in conjunction with Memphis and with Crockett. And who else was involved in that at one point in time? At the beginning, it was like Watts and Crockett and Jarrett and Ganya. And then it was Ganya and Crockett, and then it was Ganya, and that was it. What saw real early? This is, I don't need to be involved in this. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, that would have been a, a potential possibility. To go more, not only towards home, but also more toward our style, more toward how we would be presented to the best of the Midnight Express's ability with opponents that, work the same way and angles that we understood and everything, you're looking at Florida, Georgia, Continental, and Memphis. That's, you know, that's Southern wrestling. All those territories had had great histories, but in 1985, things were starting to go south. Georgia was already decimated because... Vince had gone in, got the Briscoe stock, and then, you know, Barnett's revenge on Ole, they had gotten the TV. And then they had so many complaints from the viewers about WWE wrestling being honest at a Georgia wrestling that they gave Ole his own TV show, but it was an early morning time slot, and that the promotion by then was a shambles, and that's why Crockett would pick the whole thing up later on that year. So... Would we have loved to work Georgia Championship Wrestling in the 70s when every major NWA name was there and the Omni was hot and there were 10 or 12 or 15,000 people in those shows and it was literally a one-state territory plus Chattanooga, Tennessee, where the longest trip was 200 miles and you had a day off every week and you know, again, it was Southern Wrestling. Georgia, I, as a fan, I always wanted to go see the matches in Georgia. I loved that that Omni show I saw at the WFIA convention in 1980. This was a big deal. And in the day, you could make a fucking lot of money working Georgia. Just ask Dusty Rhodes, ask the Funks, ask the Briscoes, ask any major NWA champion. Ask Ole Anderson. Ask Ole Anderson. See, now here's another thing. Ole Anderson... In the late 70s, as one of the top heels in and tag team in the Carolinas and being the booker in Georgia before he even had a piece of the office, I think, he was making 250 grand a year. That's triple that today. Because he was figured in and he was in the office as well as being a top guy. But Georgia and they would fly guys in stars to the Omni and Barnett had to pay those guys. So there were, you know, $1,000 and $1,500 and $2,000 payoffs coming out of the Omni in certain circumstances. But the Omni made the Georgia guys weak. But then you might, when Columbus and Macon were doing business, a main event payoff there would be $250, $300, if you were a... You have office favorite, maybe more than that. Well, triple that now, double it at least. So you're, I mean, this is not brain surgery. You were making two or $300 a night when the fucking 
you know, minimum wage was $3 or whatever. So Georgia, yes, had a, a history of being a great territory, short trips, great fans, money to be made on top. You lived in, in the, on the outskirts of Atlanta. This was before the traffic was anything like what it is now. We used to leave at fucking 4.30 in the afternoon from the south side of Atlanta. Georgians, you'll, you'll feel me on this. We could leave from the south side of Atlanta near the airport at 4.30 on a weekday, and we could be in Augusta by 7.15. Nobody else but the Georgians will know how impossible that is today. Yeah, I was going to say, how long would that take today? Um, Till Thursday. So, anyway... So Georgia wasn't an option in 1985 if we'd have wanted, well, if we'd have just had to had a place to go, we probably could have got in there, but it wouldn't have been a thing to do. Florida, this is tough because things changed in January 1984. Well, any more questions about Georgia first? Well, no, when you said before Georgia, Southeastern, or Georgia Continental, Florida, and I forget what the fourth one was. Memphis. Respectfully, you name four places that the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette are going to take a major pay cut from the year before. Yeah. Because they're not going to make money in any of those places at that time. Right. And and that's with Florida. Um, Florida, again, was a place where at one time every wrestler in the business wanted to go. And that's why that up and down, you go look in, in the 70s at those cards at the Miami Beach Auditorium or St. Petersburg, the Bayfront Center, Jacksonville Coliseum huge names i mean i've got a poster from the 60s one of the preliminary matches was featured carl gotch versus boris malenko holy shit what a fucking shooter's dream fest that might be winner gets buddy rogers we there you go uh but it, florida was a great place everybody wanted to work there because of eddie graham and also because of its geographic location when you were in Florida, you were the wrestling again was the biggest sport local to Florida, except maybe you know Miami. Most of the other markets didn't have pro sports teams back then. Everybody loved wrestling. The ratings were huge. The shows were weekly. They ran those those old seventies cards. They would run two towns every night in the state of Florida. So that company was running. You know, probably 12 to 14 shows a week, especially in the summertime when you get out for all the spot shows. And they kept a large roster. The money was not spectacular. But the the thing was that Eddie Graham was smart enough to know that every wrestler, let's put it this way. How many pro wrestlers enjoyed working out at the gym, going to the beach and tanning, swimming in the ocean, and hitting on girls in bikinis. How many of them? Oh, I'd say just about all of them who are straight, of course. There you go. That's why everybody everybody wanted to go to Florida, to live in Florida, to work the Florida Territory, and to learn from Eddie Graham. And there were Rick McGraw. I can't remember whether it was Florida or whether it was Pensacola, because same thing, Pensacola was the home base and everybody lived near the beach rick mcgraw worked the territory and never got an apartment he would go he would work the shows at night he would drive back to the fucking beach 
He would hang out at the bars until they closed at four o'clock. He would sleep on the beach until like 10, take a shower at one of those fucking shower things, go work out at the gym and go to the next town. He never got an apartment. And I mean, so if you wanted to do that kind of thing, Florida was the place to do it. The rats were impeccable. They were the Fabergé egg rats of the entire business. And they all were devoted and trained perfectly. Um, and they were massive amounts in every town. The trips were all the same. So all the guys knew where they were going, blah, blah, blah. And for, again, for the Dusties and the Briscoes and the Funks and the guys on top, you could still make that hundred grand a year when you were figured in in a place like that. The hot run that Dusty had in 74 that sold everything out, I have no idea what they were paying like back then, but translated into today's money, it would have been significant. And even if the pay up and down the card wasn't great, or if the territory was down, or even if Eddie was a little cheap, you're learning from Eddie Graham, you're working with the best talent in the business, you're living in, you know, wrestler's paradise, and the trips are short. So, that was all the reasons to go to Florida, but that Super Bowl Sunday in January 1985, Eddie Graham killed himself. And at that point, it was the beginning of the end, and Florida didn't last, what, was it a little over two years, and Crockett bought out what was left. So, it would have been a trick question. If you'd have said to us on January 1st, do you want to go to Florida? That's what's open. Well, shit, yeah, we'll do that. Three weeks later, no Eddie Graham. <sighs> you know, well, then... I guess if we have to, but part of the attraction was gone. Any questions about Florida? No, because I don't think there's any way you guys could have gone there in 85. <laughs> uh, so we scratched off again. Such great. I would have, the whole time I was a wrestling fan, I would have loved to worked in e and lived in either Florida or Georgia. So now we go to Continental. Well, Continental at that point in time, was the Alabama Territory. There were, in the early 80s, there were two continentals, the Old Southeastern Territory in Knoxville and East Tennessee, and then a sister continental in Alabama, which was headquartered in Birmingham and ran the whole lower side of the state, Mobile and Pensacola, etc. Dothan. And both of them were owned and operated by Ron Fuller. At that point in time, before he found David Woods to take over, and that led to the beginning of the end down there. And, you know, Continental Wrestling was just like a... It was a the closest thing to Memphis Wrestling because the people involved, the Fuller-Welch family, had pioneered and established Memphis Wrestling also. And it was weekly towns, heat, colorful fucking baby faces, dastardly heels, the whole nine yards, right? And at again, at some points, guys there, when the territory was up, which I think 85 was probably their last year of 
really any kind of serious business, right? But when the territory was up, down there, there was no Memphis. There was no Mid-South Coliseum where you could draw 10,000 people plus. But the, the territory, the, the weekly towns would do fairly well and stay up, especially before, you know, Vince's expansion hit and TV started being a premium and blah, blah, blah. So were the top guys making 600, 800 a week back then, working probably six days with short trips, being able to live in Pensacola near the beach? That's why the Armstrongs homesteaded. A lot of the guys, Piper, you know, uh, was going to go there one time just so he'd have short trips and could do his his personal things. But, you you know, and the, and the Fullers were easy. They, you know, you didn't have to show up an hour beforehand. You, All the guys came off their boat or off the beach in flip-flops and shorts and pulled up to the town about 15 or 20 minutes before the bell rang. And it was low pressure, and that's why you had a lot of guys that didn't like structure, didn't like authority. Tom Pritchard spent quite a few of his misspent youth years down there. And you just do whatever and go on. And still, you know, top guys making six, eight hundred bucks a week. That's today twenty five hundred, close to two thousand. Well, you know, it was what it was. But they had a good TV. Um, there were some good guys. We would have probably been standouts in 1985 in that talent roster and we would have taken a drastic cut in pay but we've been close to home especially bobby and dennis um you guys also would have each developed massive cocaine problems working for continental wrestling (laughs) let's be honest about that well hey let me ask you this when ron sold you know you can lead a horse to water but he don't have to drink the whole pond but sometimes if there's no cash, he may have to pay you in uh, <laughs> whatever he has there. But let me ask you this. When Ron sold to David Woods, the other partners, Bob Armstrong and I think Robert had a share and maybe Roy Lee Welch and maybe Jimmy Golden. How much did they get from the profits of that sale? I have no idea what the finances were or weren't in that arrangement. Interesting. All, all I know is a lot of people at the time were kind of giggling and speculating because in the old days... Remember Roy Welch, who invented Southern wrestling in the 30s, when he started establishing, he established the Nashville booking office and used Nick Goulas as his front man because he was still a wrestler and he didn't want people to know about that. And then they started opening up new territories for wrestling, dark places that were dark. This was before television. So they went to different places in the South and Southeast that there wasn't a strong local promotion or any local promotion and they would start setting up and Roy Welch sent Buddy Fuller to remember Louisiana back in the fifties, Memphis, Louisiana. Yeah. Well, Louisiana led to uh, the Hatfields, the Fields brothers and the Hatfields, Speedy Hatfield. They opened up Gulf coast wrestling down in Southern Alabama in that area. They would, I mean, Buddy Fuller was still doing it in the early eighties when he went and tried to open up, Dayton and Springfield, Ohio, and some of those towns that the Sheik had left high and dry. But the rib was in inside wrestling that the Fullers were noted for starting territories and hot-shotting them 
and then finding somebody to buy them. <laughs> and then they'd buy it. Well, now they've hot-shotted it, and it's ready to go down anyway. And plus, whoever bought it didn't know what the fuck they were doing. So they would end up being almost out of business shortly, and then the Fullers would buy the territory back for fucking less money than they fucking sold it for, and then they'd run it up again. But anyway, so Continental would have been a place to go to wrestle, but not... And we'd love the style and love the location, but it wouldn't have been how on our list. You couldn't take over the world of wrestling from Alabama in 1985. No, you guys would have done great stuff and people today would love it, but no one would have seen it. Even tape traders, it probably wouldn't have gone around much yeah. just because of where it was and you wouldn't have made much money. So that's the other catch. So that leaves Memphis in that particular part of the country. And honestly, besides the fact that if, if if we had been done in Louisiana and nobody had said boo to us and nobody was nibbling at us and we you know nobody was interested we probably just automatically would have asked Bill well hey you think we can go back to Memphis because that's where we came from and that's what we knew and there was still when we had left at the end of 83 business was booming i mean you know uh, I wasn't making any money because I was on the buttermilk run and I was expendable. But in 1983, they were selling your gimmicks. You would have been making money. Well, the thing is I I was actually, I, well, I still, I took a cut and pay from my photography business to get in the wrestling business as a manager. And even in 1983, when you think about it from, I think it was Memorial day to labor day, there wasn't a crowd of less than six or 7,000 people any Monday night in the Mid-South Coliseum, and some of them were bigger. Handsome Jimmy came back for a big six-man. It sold out, 11,000. That was the end of 83. And now while we had been in Louisiana, I was trying to keep up with tapes of TV shows and whatever from other places, but there was no Wrestling Observer at that point in time. It was just getting started. So you didn't really keep close tabs unless you had constant contact with somebody in another territory what their business was from week to week so in 1985 we started to find out that 84 had jared had come out on the wrong end of the talent trade with watts watts got terry taylor bill dundee the rock and roll express the midnight express and myself jared jared got rick rude masayo ito hacksaw higgins and Neidhart. jim neidhart but then in 1985 and I should have mentioned also in Continental, we might not have gone to Continental if that was our only option anyway, because I just realized there was a personal situation between Ron Fuller and Dennis Condry that I won't get into. That's right. But I do know that when Crockett was starting to do all the combination Great American bashes with the other territories like Memphis and Continental and Florida, the fall of 85, we were booked on the big event in Pensacola to wrestle the Rock and Roll Express as part of the big combined show. And we got there, and locally it was advertised the Nightmares, Danny Davis and Ken Wayne, against the the uh, Rock and Roll Express. And we're like, well, what? well, we don't want to cause any problem, but we were told to come here and flown here. And at something, it, it we ended up working with the Rock and Roll. Because it was a Crockett show, and the local promoters were happy to you know fucking piggyback on but 
For a while there, we got crossed off the card. So that's the only time that ever happened to us. I did not know that. I know the story. I know what you're alluding to, but I didn't realize it got to that point. That's the first well, time I've ever I, heard that. That's what Dennis thought. And, you know, maybe somebody else said, well, no, it's just an oversight or miscommunication. But Dennis is like, no, they didn't nah. want us to be here. Dennis has a pretty good radar for these things, doesn't he? Man, pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> but anyway, back to Memphis. So... What we came to find out later on, Memphis 1985 was the year that they brought Tom Renesto into book. Remember? Oh, yeah, I remember that. And his son, Speedy Talltree, the Indian, was one of Tom Renesto's sons. And the other one, Tom Renesto Jr., was working as Tom Branch. And they brought, was it poor old Coco Samoa was Boda the Witch Doctor? And point is, for, for quite some time, either Jarrett or Dundee or Lawler had rotated the book. But then Dundee left at the end at the uh, end of 83 to go to Mid-South with us. And he was still in Louisiana at the start of 85. And Lawler at that time, that's where he was starting to go out and make some shots. Polynesian pro, he'd already done some things in Florida. I think that may have been the year or the year after he had a trip to Japan. And Jared, I don't know what his deal was, but he was just distracted. So they bring in Tom Renesto, who had he had a booking job in the previous 10 years at that point. He had some time in Los Angeles when it was about dead. Tom Renesto, of course, along with Jody Hamilton, one of the original assassins, one of the great Hall of Fame tag teams, but Tom Renesto branched into booking, and it, I never saw it work. Maybe it did in the 70s when times were easier. Well, that's the thing. The things that worked were before the split with Gunkel and the NWA. That's when he was the booker. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So he had a, had a great run in 1972-73. That's why so many people think he was the real mastermind, because if you really look at that thing, he was the booker for the NWA office, went with Ann Gunkel as her booker. Part of the settlement negotiation between Jim Barnett and Ann Gunkel was he took Tom Renesto back as Booker. <laughs> Amazing. But anyway, so Jarrett took Tom Renesto as Booker. So 1985 was kind of drismal, both for TV and for houses and just the business in Memphis in general. But at the, they still had life. And it was still possible with the right talent and the right booking. And this was proven because. At some point, Jarrett got concerned as, all right, we got to ring this back in. So Dundee came back toward the end of 85, had another program with Lawler, and this time Lawler lost the loser leave town. It was Christmas week of 85, right? And now Dundee is the top heel and Lawler's gone, so he can do his other things and whatever, but also to create... How can I miss you if you don't go away? They need to create a demand for the king. He'd been there a while. And then Buddy Landell is kind enough to get himself fired from Crockett and immediately calls Dundee and immediately gets brought in. And now it's the Bill Dundee, Buddy Landell show. They're the top heels and they're fucking with Dutch Mantell, but he's outmanned. And then Jerry Jarrett introduces his son, Jeff, as a referee, 18-year-old Jeff puts him in the business specifically so Dundee and Landell can try to hospitalize Jeff Jarrett. When Jerry goes to save him, they try to take out Jerry Jarrett's one good eye because everybody knows he's blind in one eye. And by God, Eddie Marlin, Jerry Jarrett's 
father-in-law and Jeff Jarrett's grandfather ain't going to put up with that, and he's the promoter, so he calls Lawler on the phone, and by God, Lawler's going to be here next Monday night, and they sold the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum out. 11000 whatever. Because that's what Jerry Jarrett would do. He couldn't book that thing for 20 years straight. He would have gone out of his mind. But when he put somebody else in charge and it wasn't working out, he could fix a fucking territory in three months. One time he did in three weeks. So there was still life in Memphis. And about 79? Uh, yeah, in 79, when Fuller went back to Knoxville with all his guys, he 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 ended up, he had six guys left and some new greenhorns he brought in, and he tripled business to territory in three weeks. But the, the TV was still the highest rated wrestling show in the country. Uh, the territory was still there. Louisville was still, everything was still there. It had just had a bad run, but there was still life left in it. If we'd have gone... Anywhere of the ones that I've just talked about, we would have come back to Memphis. And at that point, Hart was gone, so I would have had a free reign. Because, I mean, let's find Bless Jeff Walton, but Tux Newman was the top manager in Memphis at that point in time, right? Because he knew Renesto from when Jeff was the publicist out in Los Angeles. No, he came in before Renesto. Did he come in before Renesto? I believe so, yeah. Well, regardless. Point is, I think I, between me and Tux Newman, I believe I could have submerged past that challenge. But again, the money in Memphis, we've talked about Lawler's money, and, and Dundee made a lot of money there too. Jimmy Valiant, not only did Jimmy Valiant make a lot of money in Memphis, they bought him a fucking house if he would stay. Well, they bought and, themselves a house that they let them live in. Well, they 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 spent the money to buy a fucking house, theorizing that Jimmy Valiant would stay for a few years, and he stayed about three or four months, and then <laughs> went to the Carolinas because even though he was making, you know, was he making fifteen hundred bucks a week at that point, early eighties? That's the equivalent of almost five grand now. Um, oh no, almost four grand now. But he went to work for Crockett because he could do better. And he dropped the keys of the house off in their fucking mailbox and had to go. So Austin Idol used to get a guarantee to come in. The Fabs, uh, when they came back from working for Vern, got a $1,500 a week guarantee apiece. And that would be close to four grand now a week apiece, plus their gimmicks. And in 1982, I know for a fact, whatever they were making wrestling, they had $4,000 weeks in pictures and t-shirts they would split between the two of them in cash. But having said that, if we'd gone to Memphis in 1985 and been the main event heels, we probably would have made about six, 700 bucks a week. Or if we got the thing popped and did a nice house in Memphis... You know, maybe we could have got to a thousand on some of those weeks. Well, it still wouldn't have been anywhere where it it was in the old days. So it's a weird question, but let's say you guys had ended up in Memphis again in late 85. Would there have been any issues with you guys having Dundee as your booker again, just because you had had him for so long just before that? Or were you guys, you know, could he have booked for you guys forever? Oh God, yes. Because see, that's the thing is... (laughs) Whatever we did in Louisiana, we could have done again in Memphis. Nobody saw it. 
Think about what we talked about on the program last week. Stagger Lee was Coco Ware in Memphis, was Junkyard Dog in Louisiana, and people in each place would have been like, what, there's another one? We didn't know that. They In wrestling in the territories, you recycled angles. You tailored them to fit the individual situation or who you were working with, but the idea of, you know, Ricky Steamboat got his face scrubbed on the goddamn concrete floor. Ten years later, Ricky Morton did. Or, you know, we fucking broke this guy's leg so we can come back, or we blinded this guy in one eye, or whatever we did. And Dundee also, the thing is, the bookers wanted their own talent. Because not only when talent found a booker that liked them and booked well for them and put them in good shit where everybody made money, they wanted to stay with that booker. But when bookers found talent that could carry out their shit and could produce with it and make it even better, that's why they brought them in everywhere. That's what Buddy Rogers didn't even invent that, but he perfected it. His guys went everywhere. The guys that he could work good matches with and the guys that could support him and draw underneath went with him everywhere. So it wasn't about, we want a new fresh booker for fresh ideas. No, we want this motherfucker that's committed to putting us over other people and letting us do our shit and we'll make it different and come up with stuff. Cause again, it wasn't so micromanaged in those days. The booker would give you your angle or write the format on TV where you were going to get a chance to do whatever and then go over the brief business with you and you did the rest of it. And then the promos were reacting to somebody actually asked me one time on Twitter when, when uh, we replayed the, the bloody jacket promo after the week after Paulie clocked me with the phone. Right. And I come out and do the bloody jacket promo and the people are chanting and everybody says, that's Cornette, that's your best promo. I'm not saying that. That's what the people say. Who am I to argue with the people? I'm not saying this to diminish Dusty Rhodes's role as the booker or to glorify myself. I'm just, this was the way it was. We did the angle, which I'd pitched to Dusty anyway. And he tweaked it. We did it. And then the next week, or actually it was the next night, because we did two tapings that week. So the night after I got clocked with the phones where I came out and did that promo, I was trying real hard to make my gig marks start bleeding again. Because they had started in the hotel room previous night with some activity after the taping. So I'm, I'm seeing if I can start bleeding on camera. But Dusty didn't have a fucking clue what I was going to say in that promo. He got with us and said, okay, kid, we're going to play the VTR from last night, and then you got the two minutes or three minutes or whatever right there. Boom. Okay. Sell me some tickets. Talk to him. I didn't have word for word what I was going to say because I never did that. I just had the points I wanted to make and how I wanted to verbally make myself a baby face and bring Bobby and Stan with me into this fight against this evil guy and our doppelgangers. And I could, the first time I cut that promo on camera was the first time I'd actually said all that shit out loud. So it was, if you knew what the fuck you'd done and how to talk about it, nobody needed to tell you what to say. And so it, it there was not so much micromanagement. So to summarize your question about a booker, if you found a booker, 
that was a good booker and liked you and wanted to use you, you stuck with him and he would bring you to different territories. And if a booker found talent that could produce for him and do his shit, he would bring them to different territories. You didn't want to just start over everywhere. And then when you got brought in, you could say, remember that thing we did in fucking Louisiana? Remember that thing we did in Greensboro? Or if it was a new cast of characters, we could tell Dusty, well, you know, we used to do this thing with the rock and roll, blah, blah. Okay, do that, kid, whatever. That's the way that this shit got started. It wasn't one person inventing every angle and every finish and every... It was all the people that had all worked for all these people that had done this and accumulated this knowledge and fair. Well, I can't do it exactly like that with this guy, but I could do something like it. And, and, and people didn't know because they weren't watching worldwide television or everything wasn't available on the internet. As we mentioned back in those days, if you missed a wrestling television program, it was never seen again. If you guys had gone to Memphis in 85 with Bill Dundee as the booker, and inevitably at some point Bill Dundee wasn't the booker, how would you guys have done with the switch over to Lawler if it was Lawler? I think at that point, I think it would have been fine because when I left, I was the, you know, the fucking boy photographer. They never, the, the best I got out of, anybody really important was yeah Cornette can talk better than we thought he'd be able to kind of that type of thing but I was still you know because they'd known me since I was 14 and Bobby had been hanging around Dennis had some gravitas to his name because he had been a top guy with Phil Hickerson and, and other partners for you know 10 years in the territory at that point but after we had gone to Louisiana drawn that money Lawler had seen it now We've got better. I've got better, more experienced. This team is clicking. Bobby and Dennis were never a team. They'd wrestled in in the Tennessee Territory individually with other partners for years, had never teamed up. It was new, and and we had gone away. So we could come back fresh. I, I don't think that wouldn't have been an issue if we had produced, if we'd have just done the same thing that the same business everybody else had, then he probably would have said, well, you know, time for a change. But we would have been, again, you know, living in Nashville, home territory. Bobby still had a house there. I, you know, I'd be three hours from Louisville for me. So, and we knew the trips, 2,000 miles a week in a car, pretty much every week. And there were no surprises and three Sundays a month off. How can you beat that? So that was that. Now, so we've talked about the AWA, right? And we talked about Florida, Georgia, Continental, and Memphis. Carolinas is not an option because we're talking about if we didn't go there, we've just left Mid-South and we've Obviously not going to Dallas because we've just talked about Dallas. That's where we did go. So now it starts getting a little fucking skinnier. San Antonio at that time. The San Antonio territory had been all right. And Southwest Championship Wrestling was probably the best 
that it had ever done, would you think? Late uh, Joe Blanchard's territory, what, mid to late 70s to early 80s. San Antonio was never a wrestling mecca, and there's not, besides San Antonio itself, there's not a lot of big towns down there. Joe Blanchard started because that was home for the, the Blanchards. They had settled there. and uh, But just as a territory by itself, San Antonio did better business when it was part of the Dallas-Fort Worth booking office territory, and then later on, you know, when they were affiliated with Paul Bosch for a while, but on its own, there were some memorable incidents, but there was nothing to write home about. And it was not a big money territory. And unless you were from South Texas, it ain't the greatest place in the world to try to travel. By 85, it was a no-money territory. They had, well, that's, they yeah. had gone broke in 83 in the midst of their attempt at expanding. They tried to go yeah. into Houston. They tried to do different things. They lost the USA Network running out of money. Their deal with Norm Keitzer fell apart with them owing him money. So 85 is a couple years later. It's not even Southwest anymore, I don't think. No, but was it still Southwest or did it change over by that point? Well, here's the thing. There was a couple of people got involved. And you mentioned in 83 was the big attempted expansion. Adrian Adonis being the world champion. And they tried to run Houston and blah, blah, blah. By 1985, there was a San Antonio territory still there. I don't think it was involving the Blanchards anymore. But remember, that was where they still did TV in San Antonio, where they had a Spanish announcer and an English announcer, which that's fine in South Texas, except the problem was both of them were standing there holding stick mics two feet from each other. <laughs> and every time you'd watch the TV, the the different language would bleed over onto what you were watching and you couldn't understand what the fuck was going on. And who was the announcer? Steve Stack. Yeah. And that's, that's where Fred Ottman was the original big Bubba. That was, that was 85, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I would watch the TV when we would be down South for Fritz and world class. I'd see this TV on late at night. Did you get to catch up on more tapes in world class because of the schedule? You brought up how you would try to keep tons up everything more, in 84. Tons okay. more. I was able to watch everything in Dallas because fuck, you'd get home Saturday night from wherever the spot show was. You wouldn't have to go to work till Monday and that'd be in Fort Worth. Except everyone, it was Sundays we'd have to go out to Lubbock or Amarillo or maybe, you know, whatever. But no, it was easy to keep up on everything. But how much did that schedule cause people to get into trouble? Do you well, think how much of it was a natural? They're young. They're making lots of money. It's the early eighties. They're going to get into trouble. And how much of it was they've got nothing to do for days at a time. Brian from 1985 world-class wrestling besides me, who's still alive. Well, there aren't many. You just answered your own question. So anyway, San Antonio, there was a guy named Fred Barrand. Yeah that had taken over promoting the South Texas towns for Fritz. At the same time, there was still that office in San Antonio. Barron may have had a part to play in that at one point. I think he was a bail bondsman, had to, had a little money. But whatever the point, they're running a small little territory in San Antonio that's not doing anything. At the same time, in 1985, Fritz is world-class, we went, San Antonio, what, it was 300 miles from Dallas, down the interstate. That wasn't bad. And you'd go to the Joe and Harry Freeman Coliseum, and the house about 12 grand, 15 grand. 
I remember one time they brought, I think they brought Flair in for a title match and we did like 30 grand in San Antonio, which was more back like in the old days because San Antonio was a good wrestling town at one point, but there's nothing around it, no other major cities. And at that point, like I said, if San Antonio's doing 10 grand, 12 grand, 15 grand, you would go to the spot shows that they'd run down there and you would basically be in front of anywhere from 75 to 300 people, sometimes in a tin shed out in a mud field near the Mexican border. And there was a hundred dollar guarantee because the boys couldn't fucking, even at a hundred dollars for a Corpus Christi or Harlingen, Texas, look that one up on the map, folks. If you flew Southwest, Southwest flew to all those towns. And back then, a Southwest plane ticket was only $29 or $39 each way. The Greyhound bus of the air, right? But then you got to stay over because you can't catch the last flight out. And then there's a hotel and there's $40, $45. And then you got to eat. So the situation was that whenever we would be booked in Dallas or Fort Worth or the spot shows around the Metroplex within 100 miles, short trip, going to be a good crowd, going to be a pretty nice payoff, that's great. When you go to South Texas, it's a $100 minimum guarantee for the talent, but you're going to lose money because that's all you're going to get because the show ain't going to draw. You've spent... 50 bucks on a plane ticket, 50 bucks on a fucking hotel, plus you've eaten, and it's a day and a half out of your life to get down there and back. So we would drive, in which case now you've got three guys in a fucking car driving 500 miles each way for $100, but at least we'll get back quicker and we'll save a little money. And then when we'd have to go out to West Texas because there was no more Amarillo territory, Whereas the Funks, Amarillo and Lubbock had never been big money towns either, but they'd been steady towns for 50 years. You go back, Scott Teal did a Amarillo history book, and you go back and in the 30s and 40s, guys like the original Dutch Mantel and guys like the Dory Funk Sr., when they would have big matches in Amarillo, they'd go outdoors to a ballpark, and this is... 70 years ago, they'd draw seven, 8,000 people in a cow town like Amarillo. So when there was a local promotion there with the funks and people that the fans knew, they could do steady business long periods of time. Now that's gone away. There's no funks. There's no local connection. It's the world-class guys coming over from Dallas. And Amarillo, you'd be lucky. And this was at what tickets six and eight dollars? You'd be lucky to do ten grand. And Lubbock, I remember four and five thousand dollar houses. And that was a double shot. You'd fly out in the morning, do one, then drive over to the other, do that, and then catch the last Southwest flight back, and you might make three hundred dollars that day before expenses. It was just caca. So. 40% or 50% of your dates were in the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area, and that's where you made 75% of your money. And then you spent money to make the other commitments. So, so yes, yeah, San Antonio as a territory itself 
was not even an option. I believe we'd have had to come back home and take up collecting stamps or going to Code Academy before that. Which, by the way, is in the same category as Kansas City Territory, Central States. Because we went there in 1985. The world-class television from Dallas was on in, in Kansas City. And Fritz and Bob Geigel and Bob Brown and all the old guard had known each other, so they would send the Von Erichs to St. Louis or to Kansas City. And they would, you know, sometimes send other talent, gorgeous Jimmy against Chris Adams, whatever the case may be. Harley's sneezing again. Is that so what that was? That's Yeah, it's Harley's allergy. She's got to hey, have her pill. Be more professional, Harley. Sorry about that. Um... Mm-hmm. So we we got booked up there, and I've told this story, and I'll make it quick. We got booked up there in May, I believe it was, of 1985, Kansas City and St. Louis. And I'm thinking, Kansas, uh, St. Louis, Keel Auditorium, oh my God, this is going to be great. And then we showed up, and Sam Muchnick had been retired for three and a half years, and the house in St. Louis was $12,000 in the Keel Auditorium. That means 1,000 people in a building that seats about 12,000. and it was just and saying and Kansas City was worse. And we went in the locker room and there's guys with their boots are repaired with duct tape. And it's just guys that couldn't get a spot anywhere else. And or Bulldog Bob Brown, who worked in the office and owned part of it. And the guys were barely making three hundred dollars a week, if that. And so, you know, we we made that shot. And got a hundred bucks a night, and then found out as we were going to Crockett, we were booked back into Kansas City, and that's when I had to call Bob Brown as the booker and say, "Well, talk to Bob Geigel or whatever. We can't come. We flew from Dallas to Kansas City, two flights, checked in a hotel, rented a car, came to work for you, and then flew back to Texas the next fucking day. We lost money." We've got to have at least $150 each for this one shot in Kansas City or we can't make it. So I'll have to talk to Bob and get back with you. And he calls back, says, okay. And then we got there and it was a tag team tournament. We worked four times. And put Bob, Bob Bulldog Bob Brown and Marty Gennetti over in the uh, finals. But uh, Kansas City was not an option. It was... It was just, it was the poverty row, the monogram studios of wrestling at the time. So that leaves that out. Now we're talking about really traveling because Portland. And again, Portland, a lot of guys had great experiences there. And a lot of guys, you know, lived there and homesteaded there. And it was a good, small, short trip territory. And People had fun, and they've spoke well of Don Owens, even if not his brother Elton. But there was there was no, especially in 1985, but even in the old days. I mean, you know, let's face it. If the hottest it ever was with, with Piper and Buddy Rose and all those guys, I don't know those guys ever got a check for $1,000. It just, I mean, maybe when Seattle at one time was drawing big money, back in the 60s and early 70s. And if the guys got on those shows, maybe there was something to be said for it. But Portland, besides, we had talked to some of the guys that had been out there. It rained constantly. 
It was short trip territory, but it was completely on the other side of the country from anywhere we'd ever been. Um, the TV was kind of primitive and was what it was. And, and I don't know, I guess, you know, I'm not even trying to knock the place cause I was never there and I know a lot of guys liked it, but I, I think that was one of those places you went when you were starting or you were finishing or you lived there. Did I say that right, Brian? That was a place a lot of guys ended up living. Piper ended up living there. Buddy Rose lived there. And there weren't too many guys other than the top, top guys that were making great money, but not necessarily Southeastern or Continental. It was a place where people talked about the easy lifestyle and the fun right. lifestyle more than anything. Right. And so, you know, there it was a trade-off, but if you were... If you were thinking, I am going places in wrestling, I am becoming a bigger star and or I have big things on the horizon, you didn't go to Portland. So that kind of eliminates that. So now, wait a minute, let me check these off. Boom, boom. We're down to Angelo Savoldi's ICW in the Northeast, which was kind of a glorified independent that ran... A live event schedule using guys that had names from other promotions and local guys. And that wasn't something that you did on purpose unless you were doing like Kevin Sullivan worked for him a lot because Kevin was booking different people, different places and getting TV tapes and doing international stuff. He had business reasons. You didn't wrestle for Savoldi then because you wanted to make a steady living and had options, right? Did I articulate that fairly well? There weren't too many options at all in the Northeast after, you know, Vince Jr.'s national expansion. It hit every place there was, but in the Northeast, it was a little different because it had been, I should say, there had been so many small shows for so many years, shows in Brooklyn and Queens and all over the place. All of a sudden, Vince pulled out, and a lot of those local promoters started doing their own things and bringing wrestlers in. And, of course, the Savaldis had previously been involved with WWE. F at the time, previous had an ownership yeah. stake in it. And then they decided to run small shows, but it really wasn't a full time territory. And if you took it seriously, it probably didn't last too long after the first check you got. That, that's a good way to put it. And I would think at the same, the same thing could be said of the Vancouver territory and Al Tomko at that particular point, right? At Vancouver, had drawn big houses under who at Dean Silverstone was it back in the late sixties, early seventies, uh, Kaniski was huge there. They had, they had done some 12,000 people houses in, in the big building in Vancouver. It was hot for a period, but not at this point. This was, it was kind of poverty row itself at that point. And we mentioned the, you know, the asterisk about Calgary, and I'll be honest with you, even if Calgary, uh, Danny Davis, he wrestled there several times and he liked it. He lived there, had an apartment, you know, could make the trips. <laughs> Danny's tougher than the average bear. There was never huge money in that territory, but guys got breaks like Dynamite and Davey coming from England or the Japanese guys coming from Japan. It was a gateway to North America. And you know, Wayne Ferris went there and became Honky Tonk Wayne, and David Schultz was there. For a lot of the Tennessee guys had gone out there, but goddamn, it's cold. Those roads, the ridiculous ribs that were at a whole nother level that 
Honestly, if some of the ribs that I've heard about in Calgary got pulled in Tennessee or Louisiana or the Carolinas, somebody might have got killed. And I'm, ta- I'm, not, I'm talking on purpose, not by accident. I'm talking about the retribution would have been a murder. Between those trips and the, the money and the, you know, the weather and it being another country, I don't think that me or Bobby or Dennis, either one of us, could have done that. And Bobby probably would have fit in better style-wise than anybody in in the, you know, the work in Calgary. But while I have incredible respect for all of those people that did that and the hearts for building it and maintaining it, I don't fucking know that I could have taken the weather or the trips or those hard-ass rings or living in Canada for any length of time. And I'm not even knocking the Canadians. they I've found out since they got a lot more sense than we do. But for for that amount of money that far from anything, I think I told you that time I was at the Calgary Stampede pay-per-view in 97, the big 10 man. And we left there and I'm driving to Edmonton that night and it was 1030 at night and it was still broad daylight and there were farmers on tractors in the fields. I said, I'm way too close to one of the poles or the other. I This doesn't seem right to me. So that probably wouldn't have worked. And Puerto Rico, I we don't even need to talk about. No. But that was before Brody got killed. Dennis would have gone. I think Dennis had been maybe once. <laughs> you thought Louisiana uh, was rough. <laughs> but yeah, but but no. See, that's a that's nothing I didn't mention about continental wrestling. I'd have been stabbed in Dothan, Alabama. I firmly believe that's another thing because the continental fans, they weren't as wild and Cajun as the Louisiana fans, and some of the guys didn't have as much heat as they had in Louisiana. But when you found the right guy in Dothan, Alabama, or Montgomery or whatever, he'll fucking stab you in a heartbeat. That's where the only time Dennis ever got cut, he got cut in the southeastern territory. So, no, we w- I would have never gone to Puerto Rico. I don't think Bobby and Dennis would have been overwhelmed to do it either. And uh, and that brand, uh, Nova Scotia, <laughs> seriously. As a matter of fact, Dennis Condry and Phil Higgerson went to Nova Scotia in the summer of 77 and lasted three weeks against Ricky and Robert Gibson. A whole bunch of Tennessee guys were brought up by, who was it? It was, it was Al Zink. Then, um, because Rene Dupree's father was a Emile Dupree was the promoter in what Newfoundland and New Brunswick, but I think Al Zink ran Nova Scotia. Regardless, um, Condry and Higgerson went up with the Gibson brothers, work a program, and they were up there for about three weeks and they got in a riot, one of those hockey buildings where the people surrounded the ring and weren't going to let them out. And uh, the cops put their hands on their guns and sided with the fans and were hot at Condry and Higgerson. So suddenly here came David Schultz with a fucking hockey stick, like a helicopter blade over his head, cleared a path. Dennis and Phil jumped out of the ring, followed Schultz, grabbed their bags, got in their car, went to the airport, came fucking home. (laughs) I think the Gibson, I think Schultz did, and I think the Gibsons may have left shortly afterwards. They were supposed to be there for the whole season. It didn't work out. So really, at that point, you're left with Montreal, which was 
not a territory per se, but a a wrestling promotion in Montreal doing still big business with the Rougeaus against the Garvin brothers and that period of time and the Joe LaDuke. And I don't think they were running a full schedule, but they were running several like Montreal, Quebec, that, uh, that that's redundant. Montreal's in Quebec, Montreal and Quebec city and et cetera. And they were doing, big houses there and flying some guys in, but it wasn't a full-time territory. And I would imagine the Midnight Express could have had a heck of a run with the Rougeos, but there wasn't a lot of long-term benefit to Montreal at that point. So we've narrowed everything down except the WWWF, or now the WWF as of 1980-what, two And Japan. Well, I said at the top, we were not going to talk about Japan, Germany, Europe, because then that gets ridiculous. And the boys might have gone to Japan. I wouldn't. I, I didn't need to. You know, they didn't need managers. The WWF never came up. We didn't talk about it until Ernie Ladd called us that time in 86 and we went up and met with Vince. We never, because it wasn't wrestling even, to, it wasn't wrestling to me even back then. And I don't think Dennis and Bobby really, you know, you watch the, Tuesday night Titans and the comedy shit and oh fuck. And they're exposing the business and whatever it, 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 we didn't think that that was our style, that we would be presented to our best capabilities. We didn't want to live in fucking New Jersey or wherever we heard those guys were living. We'd already heard by the early part of 1985, those guys are on the road in a plane every day for three, four weeks at a time before they see their house. I mean, the schedule in Louisiana was one thing, but going major city to major city across the country every day for a few weeks, we would see our home every two or three days, even if not for long. But that would be weeks, and that didn't compute to me. And, I mean, Bobby and Dennis would have gone for money. I was still kind of the same way that now that or then that I was now. I thought that it was bad wrestling and I wasn't interested in it. So that it never came up that we should go there until Ernie Ladd called me that day in Charlotte in my apartment and said, have I ever lied to you? You can make more money than you ever dreamed of. Vince is going to take over the world. He's got me scouting people. So yes, we're going to listen to what Ernie Ladd has to say because it's Ernie Ladd and he knows us from Louisiana and has a good grip on what we can do. And then I've told that story before. We flew up and talked to Vince. It was dolls, not action figures. That hadn't phrase hadn't been coined yet, but it was dolls and opportunity. No talk about, I can make you this amount of money. No talk about, you can work with these people. No talk about, you can, you're going to run with the belts. No talk about anything. Just, opportunity and we got dolls coming so we got back to charlotte and never talked about it again that's as close as we ever got to going to the wwf did that play any role in dennis leaving because that's always been one of the rumors no and without making him mad and he probably won't hear this but that's something he said so that it would sound good so that people wouldn't question him about the real reason which he told us later and we were understanding of and have not revealed since then but no, it was it was fucking nine months after our meeting with fucking Vince, he left. 
Do you realize if you had no integrity whatsoever, you would have been fantastic on Tuesday Night Titans. <laughs> you would have lit that stage up. They would have made you the biggest manager they had. Well, it would have been you and Heenan. It would have been really something. That was part of the thing. If you had gone up there, you would have been part of a collection of managers. Jimmy Hart, Bobby Heenan, Fred Blassie, Into Slick, Johnny Valiant, Fuji. Mr. Fuji. Mula was technically managing. Yeah. Albano. Forgot about Albano. Yeah. And that, that's why, I, I, you know, I said, what the fuck? I, said, I mean, there were managers. I was the only manager in Louisiana. Um. To speak of, I mean, Akbar came in a couple of times from Dallas at that point. And then I guess when we went to Dallas, Akbar came back in or whatever. Yeah, but he came back towards the end of your run and he yeah. left just about a month or two right before your run. So you had a run where you were the only manager. In I itself. was the manager. But in but with Crockett, JJ, Paul Jones, um God damn it. Baby Doll. Well, seriously. I'm talking about legitimate managers. Uh, Paul Ellering with the Road Warriors, but he was a baby face. So it, it was me, and it was JJ, and it was Paul Jones for most of the time. And we were all three different, and we didn't conflict with each other. But at, that's, at the same time, I, I looked at that also in the, you know, when we were already working for Crockett. And I said, well, here, we're figured in. Um, there's not a big field of managers that I have to be lost in a shuffle in. Uh, there's not a, there's not a tag team that can compare to the midnight express, but there's certainly not 16 teams. And that was the thing, how much we were in a spot where I was getting a two minute promo on five different television programs every week. And the Midnight Express, we're getting a win on almost every single one of those shows every week, if not every one. And go to the WWF and my every show two-minute promo becomes a 30-second pre-tape once every three weeks or whatever. Or, you know, how how many people can you concentrate on? And we didn't like the style. I didn't like the style. Boys could have, you know... Uh, kind of dealt with anything, but we weren't the type of wrestlers that got over there because it was about our performance instead of the way we looked standing there. And so it did, you know, it just, it didn't fit. However, if you had gotten an LJN and at that point in time, they probably would have made, I don't know, maybe up to 150,000 of the Jim Cornette LJNs. A, you could resell them for a great price today. And B, those things were weapons. You could have used those in so many different ways to hurt people over the years. Well, and that was the one time when I started thinking again, when we heard that the Iron Sheik got an $80,000 check for fucking dolls. I'm like, what the fuck? But that's misleading, because remember, he was in the original batch of five. Well, yes. And and see, we didn't know anything about that or merchandising or birthing no babies back in those days. But I, then, then I said, that's the thing. I said, he's a heel. I said, how the fuck? That's when we heard... <laughs> Harley just brought her ball to me when we heard oh we got dolls we're like well how does that going to affect us we're heels we wouldn't want people to buy our shit that would mean we didn't have any heat but even and see even back then vince wasn't wasn't concerned with having people believe the wrestling business which is why 
Above all else, I, I guess we knew even at a subliminal level, subliminal level, at a subliminal level, the people need to believe us for us to draw. The people need to believe me for us to draw, for us to have the heat that we need to sell tickets. People have to want to not only see us physically hurt, but do it themselves. And that's how we make money. And that's how we draw. And that's how we did draw. And that wasn't possible. I didn't think it with the WWF's presentation or with their product at that point in time. It was entertainment, and I may be entertaining, but that wasn't going to make us money the way that we were still making money back then, which was by getting so much heat that the people would pay to see somebody get even. And that worked for the whole time we were together until TBS management fucked it up. So, but the WWF would be the place besides, out of this entire list, the two places in wrestling you could make the most money in 1985 were Crockett Promotions and the WWF. And we were presented much better and much stronger for much longer and much more regularly in Crockett Promotions than we ever would have been in the WWF. And also, Vince would have probably tried to pull the deal where the team goes away after a while, but I stay and do something else. And then that would have caused ill feelings because I wouldn't have done it. So I think we made the right choice after our little detour in the Lone Star State of Texas. Although the matches would have been great. If you guys come in as heels, it's Midnight versus Bulldogs. It's Midnight versus Killer Bees, and we could all scoff at that, but those would have been good matches. You know, Brian Blair was athletic, and Jim Brunzel... Everything builds up to that dropkick, and people still pop big for that around that period of time. There would have been some shitty tag teams you would have had to work with, like the Hillbillies and various other people. Well, and we were friends with Hillbilly Jim because he's from Bowling Green, so... What about Cousin Luke? He's from New Jersey. What about Cousin Uh, Junior? No, he was from New Jersey. Cousin Luke, Gene Lewis, was Dale Lewis's brother. Lanny was Cousin Junior. He was from New Jersey. Here's something else, though, you didn't mention. If we'd gone to the WWF in 1985 and not changed anything about the way we worked, Bobby Eaton's career would have been shortened by years. The rings. The rings. He could have come off the top rope in one of those rings with that knee drop. without He'd have crippled himself in two weeks. They didn't take bumps up there. The guys that did take bumps were penalized. The guys that worked hard were penalized because it was never about matches. It was about... Big guys plodding along, get it in, get it out, and sell the sizzle, not the steak. So, if we're talking I've, about you going there in '85, when are we talking? Are we talking the beginning of the year? January. That's where we made our move. Okay, that's interesting too because remember, that's right when they're doing the Briscoes feuding with Murdoch and Adonis, and that's right when Jack Briscoe decides he's going to go home. Yeah, Jerry Briscoe once indicated to me on a show that the plan was for the Briscoes to turn heel with the belts and feud with Wyndham and Rotunda, which, by the way, would have been fantastic matches. But instead, they needed a new heel team for that top slot, and that's when we got the Sheik and Volkoff with Fred Blassie. If it's January of 85, 
there's a chance Vince says we got this hot young manager and this tag team. They just did record business, I've been told. In Mid-South Wrestling, the dog has been talking about them. You guys may have been slotted right into that spot against Wyndham and Rotunda. Well, that would have been fun for a while, but again, the rings would have been the same. And I just... All the people, the Briscoes were great wrestlers, but not noted bump takers. Uh, Murdoch, he could tailor his style for whatever. So he could wrestle on concrete or in jello pudding. Adonis took bumps no matter what. And he didn't live long enough to suffer the effects of it. I'm just, I, I don't, you know, and, and Davy and Dynamite were used to working in Japan and in Calgary where they had stages for rings also. I, it would have, it would have been, it would have penalized the Midnight Express to have to go work on concrete with what that we all did. But there you have it. Maybe it would have been feast. Maybe it would have been famine. We'll never know. We made the right choice in the long run. and. You know, it just, that. unfortunately, you know, if this had been five years earlier or seven years earlier, not only would every single place that I just mentioned have actually been a viable alternative to go because we wouldn't have been talking about, well, but by that time the, there was no money there. There would have been money everywhere. And there was more on top of that in the mid seventies. But it was just the business was constricting even at that point, and the next five years would would see everything go to shit. And then we lost an entire generation of great young up-and-coming talent that had no place to go to learn. That's why the end of the 90s became Turner Broadcasting buying all the stars that had been stars for 15 years, and Vince finally having to make some on his own. Because we got our Supply chain interrupted for about seven or eight years there. Ah, but now we don't have to worry about it because the whole thing's gone to shit in a handbasket anyway. And it turns out, all things considered, and we've considered now every possible option, you guys did the best possible thing for the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette's career for the next several years because you wouldn't have made that money or had that kind of run anywhere else or the opportunity to. Yeah. And then there was never any thought of leaving because it's not like Crockett or Dusty ever gave us our notice or said, well, you guys need to find a place to go. It was always, we need to find more people to work with you guys. So we're not going to quit and go backwards. We're, we're in a company where we're making as much money as we can possibly make in the wrestling business at that point in time and happy where we're living and working with people that we enjoy working with. So we, were, we weren't going to leave. And I have said before, I knew that eventually the Midnight Express as a team would run its course. And I had my eye on living in Charlotte for however long it took to end up booking for Jim Crockett after Dusty had enough and said sayonara. And if that had still been around, I, that's what I would have done. If you had gone to the WWF in 1985, would a younger Jim Cornette have gotten along with Jim Barnett? Probably not, because we didn't get along when we finally met each other. <laughs> well, you were a little more jaded to the industry by that point, and rightfully so. Uh, I mean, I would have, 
I would have loved the stories, and I recognize him as one of the most influential people in the history of wrestling, but I don't know if he was, at least by that point, he was a company man. If you had gone in 85, it would have been George Scott the Booker. Oh, boy. Jim Barnett working behind the scenes. Really, think about the future that you guys would have, all those people. You would have run into them here. Instead of running him into them and not liking them when we did later on. Uh, you know... I get that. That's the thing is, is it's all about time and place and what with the, the decisions we made and where we went, like you said, were probably the best thing without us knowing how wrestling was going to turn out and how these territories were going to go back then. Multiple things in our minds were viable options. And we hadn't maybe noticed the previous six months or a year where some of those places were starting to dwindle. But within the next few years, it it came up. But that's another reason we didn't ever give our notice or want to leave Crockett because we felt we had helped helped form Dusty's football team that had built that thing and made it Vince's only competition. And then when Crockett sold to TBS, like I said, at first we all thought, okay, now we're just, it's going to be the same company, but it's going to be even better funded and we can compete television and pay-per-view wise with Vince and give him some real wrestling. And then over the next two years, TBS tried to fucking copy Vince instead of doing what the NWA had done to make it stand out and be different and heard and everything else. And the whole thing just fell to shit and the business fell in a hole. And then we were like, well, goddamn, we hate working for these people but we're making 150 grand a year or whatever. And the only option is to quit and go to the WWF where their shit's more cartoon than this is. So that's why we were staying there and trying to put up with WCW as long as we could, because at least we had a steady check and we were on television. And that's when I started getting my grand plans for, well, if there ain't any places to go anymore, we'll make one. And then I stayed as long as I could stay, but I couldn't stay no more. And I fucking left. Between the time Dusty was fired as Booker and let's say the time George Scott was fired as Booker slash right around the time you guys came back. If you had been approached by the WWF at that period of time, you had a lot of friends that had gone up there. JJ. Yeah. Tully and Arn. Wyndham was there for a time. Dusty would end up going there, surprisingly. Would you have been open to it at that point? Well, and and I must say also glossing over the fact that when George Scott was named the Booker and we saw where that was heading, we gave our notice and actually did finish up and take a couple months off, but they had fired Scott before we finished, so they'd asked us to come back before we left. So so there was we had already verbally agreed to to come back cuz we wanted to. I didn't want to go to the WWF at all. Bobby and Stan were non-committal at best cuz they didn't really see how we'd be featured in the the land of the giants either and i just thought it was phony wrestling so as soon as jr came to me and said well they fired george scott and they put a booking committee in place we'd like you all to stay that's why i said well we won't stay but we will come back we plan some time off we need a rest bobby's got a bad knee we're booked in a, a few shots in continental for dundee he was booking then. It would turn out, I think they closed down three or four months later. 
So we'll come back in a couple months and start fresh. And that's what we did. That's the only time that we ever considered leaving or did leave Crockett Promotions or WCW until finally Stan and I walked out. And we wouldn't have left then if it hadn't been we saw that, well, George Scott's not going to use us. These bumblefucks, they're going to beat us into powder. We're not going to let that happen. And I knew that was the plan. I told the boys, this fucking guy's an idiot. They can't keep him long. So as soon as they fire him, we'll come back. And it it actually happened before we even left. But that was the plan. We weren't intending to go and to leave and stay gone. Forget about Dennis. Stan and Bobby, would they have been able to, at that point in time, live and work that WWF schedule? Well, no. Again, because... That's the thing. Stan, by that point, was starting to get kind of over the wrestling business because of the, you know, all the TBS bullshit and everything. And he didn't want to take bumps on that hard ring or be on the road two and three weeks at a time. And Bobby wasn't going to ever get muscles, much less whether he took steroids or not. He wasn't going to get any muscles. And it was like, no, that's why I'd been pitching Hey, boys, in the back seat of the car, we can start our own territory. Bobby was all into it. Bobby would have been happier in Smoky Mountain Wrestling than he was in WCW, except for the finances. If he, if he could have made the same money working for me as he did for WCW, he would have picked Smoky Mountain Wrestling like instantly. Southern Wrestling, territory, go to the towns, be home every night but he had kids and a contract. So he had to take the money, but he didn't, he told me himself, his words were, I never really enjoyed myself or felt I belonged here after you guys left. Cause he, it wasn't really the wrestling business to him anymore, but that's the thing, you know, they, you know, they would have not really enjoyed the schedule or the style or whatever, either. It wasn't what we did best, but you know, by that point, now the midnight's broken up. No, Vince is not going to call Stan Lane to come wrestle as a single. I, they, they knew at that point, because I'd, I'd talked to him a time or two also, like when I talked to Dusty about coming back to WCW in 91 after I'd left. They brought him back. I didn't want to do it, but I didn't want to turn Dusty down, so I gave him the excuse that I was, I was willing to come back, but I had to be able to do the LPWA stuff because they'd been nice to me. Because I knew that was a deal breaker. They didn't want their on-camera talent to be on anybody else's program. And that way I didn't have to reveal that I was laying groundwork, start my own fucking company. But I wasn't going to go back anyway because Jim Hurd was still there. And I was at Dusty's, like, you don't have to deal with him. You never theme. You did deal with me. Dusty, he'll still be here and I'll be able to smell him. Did you ever hear from Bruce or JJ or anyone after everything happened with you in WCW in 1990? Um, no, was that, was that the period of time that Bruce was fired and on the outs and was doing stuff in Texas for global? No, he wasn't fired yet. That was a, a few months later. I think Bruce would have still been there and he would have been there at the end of 1990 and early 1991 when it happened. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, he did. I didn't hear from him at that point. I think I heard from him when, <laughs> when he was in Dallas for global, seeing if, it, if I needed anybody in Smoky Mountain. Uh, I can't remember. We had some conversation about something, but then he went back up there and no, I didn't hear from him again until we sent that famous 
rib videotape of the Heavenly Bodies interview about his family. So you never heard from anyone in that office after word got out that you and Stan had left WCW? No. I, I, I mean, I'm not saying they were interested or not interested. They probably knew I wasn't interested. And see, that was the talk that I had with Herd. See, we walked out with the six months. Our contracts were up the following May. We left on October 30th, right? So that's seven months or whatever. I came home to my mom's house here where I'm sitting here right now and was visiting since I hadn't had a chance to do that in a while. And finally it came time I had to talk to Herd. I can't remember whether he had called me or I I called him back or whatever because he'd sent a couple of letters. I reprinted one of them in the Midnight Express book. We understand there's a disagreement between you and Ole Anderson, the booker. Uh, You're considered in breach of your contract, but if you can come back and make your scheduled dates, all will be forgiven. And I didn't respond to the letter. I called him and I said, well, I ain't coming back and I don't give a shit what you think about it because I'm done. Well, uh, we're not just going to hand Vince some talent. We're not just going to let you walk out of here. I said, well, you don't have to worry about that because I'm not going to the W. This was the exact words that I told Jim Hurd on the phone. I said, I just escaped from a goddamn jack-off wrestling promotion that's turned the business into a joke, and I'm not going to another one just right immediately. So you don't need to worry about that. Jim, I've got some things I'm going to do in wrestling, and I'm going to do them whether you like it or not. So if you want to send me a release on this contract that says that I can't go to the WWF, but I can do anything else, then I'll sign that. Or if you want to send me a blanket release, I'll sign that. Or if you don't want to send me a release, I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway. And by that that following week, I worked at the gardens for the Memphis territory, managing Jeff Jarrett against Eddie Gilbert. Um, And he said, all right, well, I'll send you the release, but you can't go to the WWF. And when he sent me the release in the mail, like a week or two later, it said nothing about it. It was a complete release and I could do whatever I wanted. So he couldn't even do releases right. There was no party that said, I should go to the WWF just to fuck herd. No, because I <laughs> was going to open up goddamn Smoky Man Wrestling one way or the by God other. And, and, you know, there's no place else I wanted to go. And I lived in Charlotte and Knoxville was fucking less than four hours away, right across the mountains. And I could live in beautiful East Tennessee. So, yeah, so that's kind of, uh, there was no big major legal battle. I didn't even tell him what I was going to do. and He never asked. He just sent me the release. He was as glad to get rid of me as I was to be away from him, I'm sure. He just thought that it would look good, look bad on him with the higher-ups if I left their television and walked straight into the WWF. And that was never what I was going to do. That's one of the big questions out there, and it's always circled around Ric Flair. What would the higher-ups, the real... Ted Turner, I'm going to talk higher-ups. What would he have said or done if he had known the relationship at that time between the Turner executives like Jim Hurd and Jack... Well, Jack Petrick put Hurd there. That's the reason you could say Petrick. Yeah. And the wrestlers. Because he didn't know that Ric Flair was being chased off until it happened, right? Yeah, I I honestly don't know what excuse 
that Heard was giving those people when the Road Warriors and Ellering left and Flair walked out and we walked out and everybody that else that left because they hated Jim Heard. I don't know what he was telling the TBS bosses about why all of a sudden they were hemorrhaging fucking top name wrestlers, but they didn't care. See, that's what the TBS, they thought, well, uh, it's just wrestlers. We'll find some more wrestlers. So they didn't ever understand to begin with. So I don't know what he was telling them, but the, I know that none of those executives read newsletters, kayfabe sheets, wrestling magazines, or anything like that, because everybody that left said the same thing. We left because this place is a fucking joke because Jim Hurd's an idiot. Was there any other, ever any other reasoning given for leaving guaranteed contracts that were being paid by TBS at that point besides we hate Jim Hurd, he's a fucking moron? No. No. Well, oh, and here's the baby. Here's the baby. Harley Quinn is at my feet. And Harley Quinn says, I hate Jim Hurd too. <laughs> and Harley Quinn says, Daddy, do you need to piss? And Daddy says, Yes, I do. And so we have brought we... Jim Hurd's grave here on the air for you to urinate <laughs> on. Are we finished with this territory talk for today? I think so. And you asked about part one of the video. Actually, we never put it up because we didn't do part two, but part one will be going up tonight under well, Jim Cornette's territory talk on the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. And now we'll have part two that we've just put on in the can. And, and, uh, and that way people will be able to keep it all together. That's right. Can we keep it all together? That's the bigger question. I don't know. Well, I'm about to spray it real good if I don't get off here. So, folks, I appreciate your indulgence today for the program. We winged it a little bit because of the week that everybody's having. What I said at the top of the program, I still mean every word of it. Help out where you can. If you can't help out, don't get in the way. And we will be back within the next few days with Brian Last's program, The drive Through, where we'll talk about more of this modern wrestling stuff as well as answering many of your questions double or nothing review on the drive-thru this week that's right oh boy howdy double or nothing i picked nothing i bet i get double all right until then in the meantime and in between times thank you fuck you and bye-bye everybody wednesday nights i get to stay up late which kenny omega while i masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Meltzer says I'm in the key demo. Seven stars.